Digital Gonzo, episode 99, dated Thursday the 13th of September 2012, The Legend of Korra, book one, air. Sorry, couldn't resist. Earth. Fire. Air. Water. When I was a boy, my father, Avatar Aang, told me the story of how he and his friends heroically ended the Hundred Year War. Avatar Aang and Fire Lord Zuko transformed the Fire Nation colonies into the United Republic of Nations, a society where benders and non-benders from all over the world could live and thrive together in peace and harmony. They named the capital of this great land Republic City. Avatar Aang accomplished many remarkable things in his life, but sadly his time in this world came to an end. And like the cycle of the seasons, the cycle of the Avatar began anew. Welcome back to Digital Gonzo for the last of this year's Avatar podcasts. We will, of course, be back with more reviews every time a subsequent season wraps. Next week for the 100th episode, we are talking the 10 most important video games of this generation. I will have a whole new team of guests to chew these over with. We have a list. It's more than 10. So we get to debate these up and down the table. But before that, Team Gonzo are back to usher in the new age of Avatar Korra. From extra credits, animated gaming industry lecturer and highly skilled waterbending Pixar mouse monkey, Daniel Floyd. Hello. From the Kane and Rince Serious Video Gaming Review Podcast comes muscular earthbending animation archivist Joshua Garrity. Hello there. From the Gonzo Planet community waterbending gender equalist Sharon Shaw. Hello. Earthbending comic and anime enthusiast and recent expert ninja, Sifu Jerome McIntosh. Good day, sir. Open Gangnam Style! Gangnam Style! And finally, Earthbending third highest poster on the wonderful Gonzo Planet Forum, Mr. Dwayne Griffiths. Hello. Because I never introduced myself, I'm Alex Shaw. Firebender, wordbender, mindbender, and soundbender.
I've decided not to set aside sections of the show sizzling Cora for newcomers. It's fantastic, take our word, but very much represents the fourth season in the overarching Avatar saga. You could come to it cold and may very well keep up with it, but you'd be denying yourself the first three seasons. So either way, best to listen to this show after having seen all 12 episodes of Korra. So if you don't want to watch uh, Legend of Aang for whatever reasons, at least watch Korra and then come back. Throughout TV animation history, the instance of a series getting a follow-up that's not simply a spin-off with established characters to anchor a new show, but takes place in the same universe with new and different characters, is relatively unprecedented. I wrecked my brains today and did a lot of research, and I could only come up with The Wisdom of the Gnomes. That's the 1987 follow-up to the 1985 series, David the Gnome. Did anyone remember that show? Barely. I did. Nope. Schlitzweitz. <laughs> okay. One show it does feel similar to in tone is Batman Beyond, where pretty much everyone we knew from the long-established DC universe has passed on, and we were asked from the beginning to accept the original cast of heroes and villains. Korra, like Terry McGuinness, is the spiritual successor to the previous hero, who hopefully, like old Bruce, will be able to mentor her in further adventures. Okay, so rather than going through this episode by episode, we're going to focus on the characters. With Aang, we knew where each episode fit in the general tapestry of character arcs and story threads. Crucially, what was significant for later? Korra is very much just starting out and represents the analogue of the first half season of Aang, which would take us up to the episode called The Storm, which was just before The Blue Spirit. It was initially designed as a mini-series, and thus self-contained so as not to leave on a cliffhanger that was expressly requiring completion. However, now that 14 more episodes have been commissioned to comprise the next season, which is called Spirits, and a further 26 for the subsequent seasons, these 12 represent the first steps into a story that potentially, potentially, could outstrip even the legend of Aang in almost every respect. In preparing for this show, I recently read an article named How You Can Have a Bunch of Great Ideas But Still Fuck Up Real Bad by Jade 8 Casey. It's long, exhausting, and depressing reading, underlining the main flaws in the series, most of which are situated near the end. There are many narrative requirements of a self-contained story not upheld and characters not developed. This article is exemplary of the complaints levelled at Korra, well-crafted and eloquently submitted. It's also teeth-grindingly short-sighted if you take into consideration the tenuous future of Korra at the time they wrapped the miniseries, and the fraction of the finished whole that these 12 episodes now represent, akin to a 15-page diatribe about how the first half of the Fellowship of the Ring movie left the writer dreadfully unsatisfied. We are not blind to the shortcomings these 12 episodes harbour, and we will not be making excuses. I want constructive criticism and well-reasoned debate. And while there is to be no fanboy gushing, neither are we going to sell short the accomplishments of this creative team. So we'll start out with the character of Avatar Korra. So how long on watching this did you guys miss Team Ang for? Quite a while, in my case. I have to admit, it 
it took a long time for this series to really grow on me. About three episodes. Because uh, I had just finished book three and dived straight into Korra right after, there was that short transition period of, oh, it's not Aang, oh, it's not Katara, oh, I missed them. But once I got a sense of where this series was going and the kind of creative decisions that they were going to make, I really grew to love this team and this and this avatar in particular. The transition was actually pretty easy for me. Like I, I did have those kind of pangs of like I, I I did move right from Aang to Korra like in the same night. And wow, we at least left it a day. Come on, yeah, yeah. And uh, well, I was re- like by the end of Aang, you really just want more. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I denied myself, tantalized myself. But and so yeah, yeah, I really love those characters, and it would have been cool seeing them come back. And so you have that initial pang of oh, it's different. But then it was very quickly, like, overtaken by the excitement of, wow, it's different. Like, immediately your first impression of Korra is the exact opposite of Aang in almost every way. Mm. And, like, it would have been so, so easy for them to use the Aang series as a formula and retread old ground with this. Like, to leave the Four Nations pretty much the same, despite the passage of time, and, like, to to send Korra off on a journey a, a lot like Aang's in most respects, but... Instead, they've made a really different story and like a pretty new era of this world. And Korra is facing totally different problems. They just like refuse to play it safe. And like whether you like the new direction or not, and however long it takes to adjust, that that really like I admire that. That that takes a lot of guts. I was right in there as soon as the start. I obviously had a reasonable amount of time to make my peace and enjoy Avatar Aang. Yeah, because you're the one who actually saw it from the beginning, um, you know, from a long time ago, and then actually worked your way through, and you had to do the waiting. Yeah. Now I know how you feel. (laughs) (laughs) And the fact that everything is so different, one of the things I love about it is they've skipped so far into the future that, you know, with completely new people and completely new settings and everything is different. For me, I kind of didn't let myself think like that to watch it. It's a new show. I wanted to really just accept it for that, get into the characters. But then it bothered me when I got to the flashbacks. Yeah, I'd rather see a series about this. But then obviously it evolved a bit more and I kind of like the fact that it's in there and you're getting a bit of both. But obviously that's something we're going to be coming to in Season 2 a whole lot more, hopefully. Mm. Well, one of the complaints about um, this series uh, was that the flashbacks came a little bit too late, that you needed to know about this stuff earlier. But clearly they, they were holding back on Team Aang for, just to let you grow acclimatised to, to Team Korra. Yeah, I think they needed to give it some time to establish these are the new characters and they are the stars of the show. It's, mm. it's like the same thing, like... They said if you brought like Shatner back into the new Star Wars or into the new Star Trek reboot, like it would immediately like having he and Nemo together would basically overpower the new cast, and you really yeah. like you just kind of get stuck in the past there. I think it was good that we got enough time to introduce everybody and kind of get acclimatized, and then they started making sure to show that like the characters we know and love haven't gone anywhere, and they are and they still have a presence in this. So Avatar Korra herself. Korra, please come in here. You gotta deal with it! Introduced as a four-year-old, perfectly balanced, well, hang on, almost balanced bender, in in that she she uses very aggressive bending techniques, but she is already at four, managed to, um, if not master, but harness water, earth, and fire. And as far as I can tell, that's relatively unprecedented in Avatar terms. 
I think they usually, or at least in the past, they've talked about having um, tests to establish whether children really are um, the avatar. So I would imagine that the ability to bend more than one element um, at that young an age is rare enough as to be unique in Korra's case. As seen in the M. Night Shyamalan film, The Last Airbender. They, they make a case of pointing out that Korra absolutely excels at the physical side of bending. Mm. So it would make sense that her younger self would just get a grip on all this stuff really early. She's not particularly good at it at this point, but because she's so naturally talented, she's able to do it quite early on. Mm. Now, they were in real danger of making Korra Mary Sue, and she does... Let's, let's face it, she does occasionally drift into that because of her incredible cat-like reflexes and beautiful hair and beautiful eyes. And she's just so pretty and she's just so... What's, what does Marco refer to her as? Uh, the most selfless, the most brave and the most loyal person that I know. They, just, they almost don't seem to be too many faults. You kind of have to look below the surface of the fact that while these faults may be charming, they are actually faults such as her clumsiness, such as her you know, pig-headedness sometimes. I was going to say, apart from what Marco says to her at the end, I don't think any of that is really true. I can't recall anybody in the series telling her that she has beautiful hair or beautiful eyes. In fact, she constantly seems to be comparing herself to Asami, who is mm. very you know, classically beautiful. Um, and uh, as to cat-like reflexes, depending on which <laughs> cat you're referring to, <laughs> a cat with very big paws. Yeah. A very the, big cat that jumps in and overpowers something. Yes. The hallmark of a Mary Sue is someone who is uh, special from the word go. So that's kind of what the alarm bells were, were ringing off and don't really have to work for what they achieve. That's funny. I, I saw Cora from the beginning as much more flawed than Aang. Actually. Yeah, I was going to say. Like, because yeah. Aang is very like, he's the peacekeeper. He's kind of, he's got a lot to learn about bending, obviously, and he's got his own flaws. But he seems like really like the perfect guy to be to the Avatar. Whereas she is so brash and so forceful, and like just has so much to learn about how to f- properly fill that role in a way that is not just always power. That she's really like. She is the le- probably the least qualified person to handle the conflict she's about to be faced with, which mm. is what makes it all the more interesting. Also, like, she, well, she, like we needed a peacekeeper for this for yeah. this problem. Someone older, someone wiser. Yeah, she seems not very worldly. She's very narrow-sighted in the way things are taken off. She doesn't see the bigger picture quite a lot. Mm. She's she's very well-intentioned, but I think her like defining trait is that she will always take the brash and forceful approach if she has the opportunity, like without fail. I, I think it's why firebending is her go-to element, even though she's technically water tribe. Like, like she can be told to like, all right, meditate and be patient, but the instant she sees an option more to her nature, she will always take it. Mm. And she's been looked after for so much of her life that she's not very good at surviving on her own she's not very canny so she blunders into republic city at the beginning uh, and just starts picking up food from a, a you know a, a vendor's cart and uh, she says okay i don't have any money and it's like she didn't even think to herself this person's going to want something in trade for this food that's a good point to mention actually the white lotus being very much a part of the world more into it than obviously they were a bit more secretive in ang and you see them on um, Air Temple Island. Basically, I was thinking, why are they there? And I came up with the conclusion this morning, it's the last airbenders, they're there to protect them.
bring yourself back mentally to the first time you were watching this, and how much did you guys know about it? How, how, you know, did you know that, uh, say, Katara is at the beginning? I had no idea Katara was going to be in it. No, I knew, I knew that. I knew Cora was going to be Southern Water Tribe, but the moment I saw that old woman with her hair loopies, I thought, mm. "Wait a sec, who's that?" And then one of the White Lotus actually refers to her as Katara. And instantly, that's an emotional reaction because yeah. you see this person that you've seen go on this, you know, journey. You've been on this journey with this character for so long. And then to see her that old and and towards the end of her life, it's kind of... Uh, I think you described it to me as bittersweet. It was nice to see yeah. that character again, but seeing her so old is kind of slightly depressing. It's a little bit... I don't know, this is... Okay, Sharon, I'm just going to say one word. Highlander. Heather. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. She raced on ahead and got old, and we're still the same age. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, so it, it's kind of sad, but at the same time, it, she's a link and a touchstone to uh, the, the previous series, and you, you, you treasure the few seconds that she's on screen. And, and uh, She's played by Eva Marie Saint, who was actually Martha Kent in Superman Returns, and, uh, you know, was a, a, a beautiful young actress back in her day, so it's kind of appropriate. I think it's interesting that the White Lotus decided to um, keep her in this facility. She's Compound, not, yeah. Yeah, she's not being... Uh, like previous Avatar... We've seen with Roku, um, the Avatar kind of travels across the world, mm. uh, stays in a particular nation for a few years to master that element, and then moves on to the next nation. Um, here, it's it's almost like the White Lotus have become way too overprotective. They're like, no, we are not exposing you to the outside world until you are fully trained and capable. Yeah. Um, it sounds like Aang has, uh, gave them specific instructions to look after the next Avatar. I don't know whether he uh, ordered them to build that facility and keep her there, but it sounds like he said, look, guys, watch out for her. She's going to have some... It's some rough stuff to deal with in our future, so keep her safe. Hmm. Basically, it's like they've taken away the reason you go around learning the other bending styles, because you also learn about the different nations, and you meet people, making you more worldly, but keeping her cooped up, these are very blinkered. I think, yeah, it does sound as though uh, the way they do the firebending test and the fact that they're talking about Tenzin coming to... Um, her village to teach her airbending. It sounds as though they've brought the teachers to her. Yeah. Which yeah. does kind of defeat the object a little bit, because even when you look back at the other avatars, Roku went from place to place, didn't he? They didn't come to him. It's more than just the fighting. It's about absorbing their culture. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It, I, got, I got the impression that they were um, like kind of following the letter of the law that Aang laid down, but kind of maybe yeah. missing the intent. So uh, she's just so it has ended up resulted in her being a lot more sheltered and less world knowledgeable. But that works because it gives her that sense of well, she's not worldly. If she had travelled the world and if she was culturally aware, she'd have a lot less to learn. Like even at the beginning when we we meet Ang and we're going off on the on the, uh, the the adventure, he only really knows the air temples. They do need to give her a lot of development in a short space of time, and one way to create that. Artificial is not really the word I'm looking for, but but to to um, create a scenario in which that is necessary is to have all that development that should have gone on beforehand cut out for some reason. And I think they did it pretty effectively.
Um, Cora's um, ignorance is also a good way of introducing the audience to the world because mm. she comes to Republic City and she refers to stuff. Oh, she goes, oh, look, metal benders, as, as if she's only ever heard of them in books or stories that Tenzin or Katara has told to her. But she's never seen all this stuff for herself, so she's looking at amazement the same way we are. When she looks at the statue of Aang, she... Just she's suddenly taken aback the same way we are because of our connection with that character. Next question. How have the production team shown the passage of 69 years? It feels like all the technology we saw in The Legend of Aang has evolved further. So we got introduced to stuff like the airships, uh, people starting to discover metal bending and uh, lightning bending, and all that stuff has been taken to the logical extreme so now airships aren't just uh, military devices. They're a form of transport that everyone uses. Um, the tanks have turned into cars and buses. Subtermobiles. Um, yeah. Um, it, it just feels like all the stuff... It's much the same way uh, with World War II, actually. A lot mm. of the technology that was developed in World War II uh, are used by every you know every day now by normal people like computers yeah. and stuff like that. So it's just it's taking all that technology and giving it to everyone. Yeah, that's true. Like four nations worth of military technology that has been developed for like a hundred years, and then suddenly you put all of those nations together in a cooperative, peaceful environment, and it kind of makes sense that you would get just a golden age of expansion and industrialization golden age is a really good way of putting it actually it's uh, everything in uh, the original uh, Legend of Aang is pre-industrial and this is industrial but they've thrown the automobile in there and the electrical age all, all at once so it's got kind of a steampunk aesthetic to it I, th- I described it as being a little bit like Bioshock yeah there was a bit at the end just now when uh, when Amon holds his final rally before he came up on stage I said to Sean I'm Andrew Ryan yeah. he's got his ideals he believes in these ideals which makes him all the more powerful the the gloves that the equalists use is, is very kind of similar to your, to your right handed stuff obviously if the kids are listening and they're below the age of 18 they won't have played Bioshock but let me tell you once you hit 18 the, the design aesthetic of that game is, is very similar in, in terms of intricacy everything looks crafted the Fire Nation that we saw before was very kind of militaristic very sort of uh, utilitarian but this is all it, it's almost art deco it makes me very excited to see more of the Four Nations in future episodes because we we were very focused on the Republic City environment in this season, but yes. we saw from the Southern Water Tribe that not all of the world has advanced in that same way, which would make sense. Like It would make sense that capital cities would be really like kind of the hub of technology, whereas a lot of the outlying areas might still be kind of uh, traditional and a little bit more rustic. So I hope we get to see more of uh, the world. 
I, I, it can now be referred to as the Five Nations because apparently uh, Republic City, if you read up on the wiki, is a nation unto itself. Uh. It's a, the capital city of the United Nations or something like that. They're called um, the United Nations? That's why they just squabble and waste time. Oh, right, okay. The United Republic of Nations is what it's called. Gotcha. Right. Okay, so who's read The Promise? I have. Yes. Yes, yes. I know, I know what goes on in The Promise. I haven't read it, but I know exactly what happens. I've read all the parts you put on YouTube. Cool, thank you. Right, Josh, take the time when, at some point to check through that. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. It starts off, and I'll spoil a little bit of The Promise, because ultimately it, we've got to talk about that on the, these podcasts. Uh, this is a three-part comic series, two parts of which are out right now. The third part is just on the way. It answers the question of where is my mother from Zuko but it's actually it's more about what Zuko and Aang did in the year after the defeat of Fire Lord Ozai it's to do with the Fire Nation colonies that were set up in the Earth Kingdom and the pulling out of those colonies to repopulate the Fire Nation with these these people but to, to give the Earth Kingdom back to its people but the interesting thing is, it's like Northern Ireland and ERA, and to a degree, it's also a little bit kind of like Israel and Palestine. I mean, these are huge political, real-world topics that they're handling in a comic book, you know, aimed at 6 to 11-year-olds. It's not a simple black-and-white case of the Fire Nation bad, Earth Nation good. In a lot of cases, these colonies have come to depend on each other, and they've got roots and families and traditions, and generations have lived and died there already, because Aang's been away for a hundred years, and Aang and Zuko just decide to repatriate everything, so Zuko starts to be in two minds about it, which creates more and more conflict, and I believe, from what it's leading up to, that Republic City may have come from that, that they needed to find some new ground to put these people in that wasn't necessarily thrusting them back into uh, the Fire Nation or forcing them back to the Earth Kingdom or out of their homes. And it's possible that this was built on the site of a settlement that they just couldn't move. That actually would make a lot of sense, given why it, that it's on the, in the Earth Nation on the western coast. Yeah, yeah. It may also explain a bit more that um, why Bolin's an Earthbender and Mako's a Firebender were the same parents. Indeed, because that comes up in the uh, the book as well. It's uh, there is uh, there is a uh, Firebending man and an Earthbending woman, and the daughter who wears both green and red is an Earthbender. And Sharon, you said yourself earlier today, why hasn't this happened before? Seriously, in thousands of years, or at least hundreds of years worth of actual element bending, how come? You know, mixed nation couples have not turned up with various different children with various different abilities. Why is it only happening now? Well, if you look at human history, that similar situation there, it's only in, you know, recent years that we've developed multiculturalism. Uh, There's thousands of years, like Roman era and stuff like that, where people Mm. just stayed where they were and... There was a little bit. I mean, Britain is kind of a hodgepodge of different cultures and societies. I think it makes sense that, uh, like, it's only now when we're entering the four nations equivalent of the 1920s, 30s era that multiculturalism and interracial relationships are starting to happen.
but the actual Republic City is based on Shanghai in the 20s and 30s. It's, it's definitely got a, a, a flavour of an actual living, breathing city. They could feasibly keep the series there and only take fleeting journeys to the rest of the world. I hope they don't. I hope that they really travel a lot and we get to see how things have developed. But when you got the flashbacks and the references to Kyoshi and Roku in the past, you never really got that sense of technology and time moving forwards because everything always seems sort of Eastern mythology. And so, you know, a little bit medievally, but, but there was never any sort of sense of... Okay, back then they really had nothing but sticks and rocks. Well, it was more of a case of they relied on bending rather than technologically advancing. Yeah. Oh, uh, until they got to the uh, Sun Warriors, when you became aware that this actually went back quite a long time. Because you've got that sense of time, the world becomes the star. The series has always been really good about showing change and time passing. Seeing the main cast grow up a little and change their style, change their clothes, change various aspects of themselves, even within the Aang series, was something that I always really loved. And they've just taken that to the next step with this. And it's, worth think- pointing out, and it's worth pointing out also that the show looks on par with a lot of feature animated films at this point, and that is ridiculous. Yeah. Josh, you always compare it to Summer Wars, don't you? Yeah, it has that same smooth animation quality that Summer Wars has, where it feels like there's not many frames in between each animation. It's, yeah. it's really good. Smooth, vibrant, and very, very HD. We didn't mention last week during the fire episode that they changed their costumes. I did want to say, I kind of wish that Ang and company had changed their costumes for the Earth season as well, because it gives that sense of progression. And although they didn't have to, because they didn't have, they actually wore the Fire Nation stuff for practical reasons. They were in disguise. The idea that Ang would be trying to immerse himself in the culture so that he could learn earthbending, just to give you know a bit of a palette swap and a bit of a culture change. His first outfit is a little bit kiddy now in retrospect. Now that we've seen him in his Dalai Lama outfit and his um, uh, Shaolin fighting monk outfit and with animation and especially with TV animation when you have to be so efficient like uh, it's just very tempting to keep things kind of on the standard model for what a character looks like because changing what they look like is always more work but it adds such a nice feel of like when Sokka's asleep and his hair is untied or something like that yeah it it just actually feels a little it feels a little bit more real which is nice and Zuko probably goes through the most costume and cosmetic oh, changes as well of all of them, but if, which is symptomatic of his, his arc. That is one thing that I think brings you out of that a little bit, and it's something that they may have done on purpose, but the fact that Korra sleeps in her clothes, and her including boots. her boots, mm. and never changes them unless it's for a specific purpose, like when she goes to the party, she wears a, a, a dress, or she's got an outdoor coat that she can put on over the top, or she's got the uniform she wears when they do the um, uh, Tarlox Task Force episodes. But other than that, she's always wearing the exact same clothes. That girl's got a stink. I'm the pro bending. <laughs> Oh, yeah, she does have a programming stuff, yeah. It might be making excuses for it, but I wonder if when you're living on the North or South Pole, like, and there's just a matter of how cold it is, maybe you do just... I don't know if they have pajamas. That's <laughs> true. South Pole. And, I, I, and Marco and Bolin are too poor to constantly change their wardrobe. <laughs> yeah. All right, what about Asami? What's her excuse? Uh, uh, she leaves all her dresses behind. <laughs> oh, one tiny little detail, which I loved... Marco's vest, when you see him later on, and he's just sort of he's cleaning or doing chores at home while um, Bolin is reclining, has a little tear in it at the top, in the, around the neck, with stitches, which is a really great way of showing that he has had to make his vest last. 
It's just little touches like that. I love stuff like that. Right, okay, let's get on to the other characters, shall we? Okay, so, uh, at the end of the first episode, she goes to stay with Tenzin on his island. What has happened to airbending culture since the defeat of Ozai? like they're desperately trying to preserve the airbender air nomad culture uh, they've created this air temple island which is right off the shore of republic city and it's almost like a, a monument Nature preserve yeah and um, it, yeah. it has uh, tenzin's family who are the actual airbenders and there are a, gr- a group of people called the airbender accolades i think they're called acolytes, acolytes. um who seem to be just non-benders who want to live that kind of lifestyle. The, Vegetarian. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the peaceful, meditative lifestyle that the uh, air nomads used to live. And also, as Jerome... or No, sorry, it was Dwayne who mentioned that the uh, White Lotus are situated on that island as well, just to, for that added protection, having a bunch of earthbenders, waterbenders and firebenders there to make sure nobody tries to... Because I imagine there are some people who, you know, extremists who might want to see the airbenders dead, just yeah. wipe them all out or something like that. We know that's definitely something that might come up later on. Um, Ang and Katara had three children. Yeah. Uh, there's Kaya, who is a waterbender. Uh, there's Bumi, who is a non-bender. And then there's Tenzin, who is an airbender. But I know that they're pushing like, a straightforward family values thing in this show, but I am kind of astonished that they didn't go, right, let's have 50 kids. <laughs> With as many women... Oh. Uh, who are able to bear Aang's children as possible. You know, family values out the window. We have to repopulate one whole nation of the four nations at this point. However... Uh. Yes, they might all have one thumb and six toes. No, no, no. Whereas previously, and I can't remember where this was referenced, I think it was in um, Lyra's Avatar books, that all air nomad children are airbenders. Yeah. But now we've got into a scenario where you, people are starting to mate, for want of a better word, across the nations, and it is evident that that's not always going to be the case, then that wouldn't necessarily have been guaranteed to produce multiple airbending children. Wouldn't guarantee it, but it's better than one. Yeah, but I think Katara would get a bit knocked after the first dozen <laughs> when only one of them was an airbender. She'd be like, really? This isn't working. Could we please stop? <laughs> okay, I know. But, I think okay, Tenzin's but, having a good crack at it, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> and, That's yeah, yeah. Tenzin is succeeding where his dad um, was lazy. So. <laughs> <laughs> he had important avatar things to do. Katara was left at home twiddling her thumbs. Uh. <laughs> anyway. 
Let's move on from this one scene. But again, it, it makes sense, though, doesn't it? Surely, if you want to repopulate an entire species... Oh, um, it's, I it's not just culture where you can learn it. It's, it's, it's a race. Yeah. But the cross-breeding... <laughs> breeding? That's a terrible word to use. <laughs> cross-family? Cross-genetic um, cross producing... Um, that is is becoming evident suggests that it's not separate species. Then they're not separate races. They can have very diverse children together. Here's the interesting thing: no Airbenders were born once the Air Nomads were wiped out. It was just Ang, which means nature is not generating these Airbenders. There is, it has got to be genetic. That makes sense. Yeah. So that actually is suggestive of species of some kind. Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, uh, if, if you manage well, to... An, an evolutionary side road, like, like mutants in uh, Marvel. Well, if you, if you think about it, if you manage to somehow eliminate all red-headed people from the globe... Fingers crossed. You... daughter's <laughs> <laughs> red-headed. My wife's red-headed, and I adore redheads. I just went on like Carmen there. So. Well, mine's died, but yeah. Um... <laughs> You, you, not for the want of trying. You wouldn't necessarily, and I'm talking about wiping out the gene here as well, because obviously the red-headed gene is recessive and it might spontaneously recur. But if you managed to get rid of everybody who was carrying that gene, that's it. There would be no more redheads. Yeah. Yep. So, But that's not to say that somebody from France who marries somebody from Germany can't have a red-headed child. Okay. I would like to make it clear, folks, that I am not a monster who is into eugenics. <laughs> Love redheads. Anyway. He does, too. We could actually talk about the family themselves as well as, as Tenzin here. Um, probably a good time to mention Milo. Oh, God. <sighs> I don't grind my teeth when I see this kid, and they actually kept the fart and poop jokes to a minimum. Milo is, is kind of a, an anomaly for the, this show, because... He doesn't need to be in there. His humour doesn't need to be in there. I really like the kind of... You're pretty. Can I have some of your hair? Like, creepy kid, uh, like, you know, with no boundaries. That's great. But the actual pooping and farting thing... The interesting thing is, I, I do kind of get that the farting is part of his expression as an airbender. He has created this new kind of bending. Maybe this fart. is metal bend... Yeah, fart bending. Metal bending for airbenders. It's like lightning bending. I hope not, but... Um, <laughs> It just seems like something that was come up with over a McDonald's meal, and then they somehow wormed its way into the actual show. I like I, to just pretend that it's part of a contractual obligation that is yeah. every Nickelodeon show has must to have fun. <laughs> there, there were a few moments of Milo that made me smile. Like there's a moment where uh, the phone is ringing and uh, Tenzin and Pema are asleep, mm. and Milo climbs over them and answers the phone and goes, "Who's this?" It's six in the morning. This better be important. <laughs> in his little cut, a childlike voice, and I found that kind of adorable. But Same yeah, man. as you guys said, mm. the fart jokes got a bit annoying. Yeah. Well, there are only a few, but, but they, they do great a bit. Yeah, let's do it. What are we doing? I got a poo. Really bad. One of my favourite moments in the whole show is Milo jumping on Naga and pulling on his ears and shouting, You can fly, Skybison, fly! Nice. I love that. <laughs> we 
shall meet again soon, beautiful woman. Iki and Janora. Janora, yeah. Iki and Janora. You know, charming, lovely, hyperactive little girls. Um, but you know, one of them's a little bit quieter, a little bit more well-read, a little bit more um, contained. But my favourite bit with these girls is... Um, Asami, did you know Cora likes Mako? Oh, uh, no, I wasn't completely aware of that. Hey! Run along, Iki! There's three super deformed, like, you know, exaggerated poses in the space of a minute there. That was after a particularly heavy uh, episode. So they, they wanted to just sort of, you know, calm down a little bit and, and, and bring you back with some humour. But uh, that's a yeah, lovely little moment there. Iki space oh. there is almost Jonah Vasquez. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, Tenzin himself, voiced by the great J.K. Simmons, J. Jonah Jameson himself. It's very difficult, as Sharon said earlier today, to, to see this man in a very serious role. <laughs> it's interesting because I've seen him in more serious stuff. Um, I've watched the TV show Oz, where hmm. he plays a white supremacist Nazi. Oh, wow. Um, and he's really brutal and serious and dangerous in that show. So to see this more serious, more chilled out uh, version of his acting wasn't so much of a surprise uh, because I know you guys are more familiar with his Portal 2 performance and his mm. Spider-Man performance, which is much more animated. And Juno and, as well. Yeah, I was going to say Juno. I see that liquor kid, I'm going to punch him right in the winner. <laughs> he, he plays it almost like you'd imagine an older version of Ang. Only he's a little bit unbalanced. He's he's gone too much in the direction of trying to be calm, and thus he has a little bit of a temper. He does have little bursts of uh, excitement as well, like when yeah. he's watching Kara Probend. He's all about um, you know being able to keep yourself under control, but uh, he's also very stubborn. It's to the fact that he was the airbender child of the three, and he's yeah. sort of taken on the responsibility of he has to be the representative now. Yeah. He was always the serious child. He, he looks like he bottles up a lot of frustration and anger, and yeah. sometimes that can just explode when he doesn't want it to, like with Cora and, and some other characters. And I think that's possibly because of the political life he's had to live. He's had to contain a lot of his feelings and emotions so he can you know, convince people that what he's trying to say is the right way of doing things. And getting people on his side. I suspect as well that the ending of his relationship with Lynn mm. was less romantic than Pema would have had Cora believe. And I, I have to admit, there is a part of me that does wonder, especially considering that he obviously had his children fairly late in his life, um, and Pema is quite a lot younger than him, whether his intention was to stay with Lynn, but that could potentially have meant no more baby airbenders. Oh, I cannot wait for episodes detailing this. I really can't. I, oh, this is be so good. The only other thing, really, I should mention with Tenzin is, obviously, he's got his own flying bison. Um, mm -hmm. Can't think of his name. Oogie. 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 And uh, I've read somewhere, apparently, during Ang's journey, he found an island full of sky bisons. Well, that explains it. Yeah.
Right, so Marco and Bolin, the uh, Quidditch, ch- sorry, pro-bending champions. Um, <laughs> uh, pro-bending is very much sort of a distraction at the beginning. It's really cool looking, but they kind of abandon it somewhere in the middle when things get real. But it's, it's really exciting and fun to actually see. It's, Sh- Lyra pointed out, um, having played a lot of Super Smash Brothers, that's like the Pokemon arena. Well, yes it is. I do like that they did establish, like, really clear rules for that game it wasn't Mm. just something that they came up oh they'll have a sport now so let's come up with something quickly it feels like a very it it feels like it has very specific rules like for example you can't you can't use bending too much you can't like hose somebody with water you only strike them yeah you can't use ice um you can't can't use headshots headshots or anything like that yeah. Um, I like that they have the sectioned-off areas of the arena as well, so you can't cross certain lines and stuff like that. It's a really intricate game. It's like a really complicated game of dodgeball. It would most definitely make a great next bla style download game. Either in first-person connect, which might be... No. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Just be flinging your arms about, and I'm throwing fire now, I'm throwing fire now. <laughs> Or a top-down viewed sort of sports game that could get really frantic. It'd be even better if, uh, like, uh, one person was controlling each character. So it's not like a football game where you're controlling the entire team, but you have oh my uh, god, three Six people player online pro bending, lying on your teammates. <laughs> yes, this must happen now. <laughs> <laughs> that would be. But yeah, no, yeah, viewed from the like in a FIFA perspective, that'd be great. That really would. And making it all about just reactions. In the same way as Joe Rowling kind of got a little bit sick of writing Quidditch and didn't know quite what to do with it after a certain point, they kind of like put it in the background when it became apparent that Cora should be spending her time trying to deal with the actual problems in Republic City and not just, you know, doing sports. I think it's a good entry point for her into this world and this city. It's something that appeals to her tastes. It does a good job of establishing she, Mako and Bolin's relationship really early on. And it does end up helping being like a great way for her to learn a little bit of her airbending to click in a way that would make sense for her. I know there's something about probending that's much more attack-focused, even with elements yeah. that aren't necessarily... Like, everything kind of functions like firebending does, almost. And yeah. so it just and which, which each other. caters to her perfectly. So it makes sense that that would be the arena she would... That, it would, that airbending form would totally click with. And I kind of like, I kind of like seeing that sort of the journey that like ancient martial arts have journeyed up and are now being used kind of in a MMA or boxing sort of arena. Yep. It's cool seeing like an evolution of the arts. And of course, Tenzin would have seen it and be like, uh, stupid. That's a perversion of this old traditional wonderful art that we have. But it's mm. cool seeing it and kind of like really fits within this modernized city. Also, he might be a little bit jealous because Airbenders are unfortunately either not, not only not invited, but there aren't any. I'm so really it's only going to be unbalanced all the time. I'm sure he can make his own team eventually. <laughs> He's got one already. <laughs> I'm really glad you brought up MMA earlier, oh, Daniel, yeah. because um, the way Ma- Ma- Marco and Bolin fight feels yeah. very much like that. Like, they have their arms close to their chest and face ready to block. It's mm. not this super stylized fighting that we've seen in previous uh, series. This is very economical almost it's much more like kickboxing yeah. or uh, MMA it's not very it's not an improvement on the arts it's taking those fighting arts and using them 
in a very specific, effective way for the goal they have to accomplish for that game. Like it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, like it's not an improvement, but it works really well for that sport. It's like a new style. It's like even with the earthbending, you can't really be planted and still like they show you in that episode. Mm-hmm. You have to be light-footed until you're ready to strike. And you can only use the uh, discs provided. You can't be flinging the environment about. Oh, the other thing is, of course, that Korra herself is based. What her, her body type is based on MMA, female MMA fighters. Very specifically, Gina Carano. Josh, I know that you've seen Haywire. Yeah, um, Cora has that really big shoulder blades, and she has the upper body strength that uh, Gina Carano has. Uh, she has a lot of muscle on her. She's not a skinny twig. Mm. She looks oh, like well, she could punch you and lay you out. Well, she did manage to pick up pens in the most of his family in one big hug. So Yeah, yeah she's showing you said, how strong is she? <laughs> exactly. She lifts with her legs. She's got very few... Females in animation are animated with big, stocky legs. Nani in Lilo and Stitch has got like a Hawaiian figure. I love that. And and Korra, very specifically, has got big, strong, <clears throat> planted, earth-bending legs right there. And, and yet she still has a very feminine form. It's it's a it's a tightrope to walk. But I challenge you to find as many animated shows as you can where the girls don't all have legs like Asami. Or indeed, all look exactly the same. Mm. Oh, and plus, sensible footwear. Hell yeah. <laughs> okay, so Marco and Bolin. We may as well um, do them together because there's not enough character to go around to talk about them both. At present, right now, these are two of the most undeveloped characters in terms of the amount of screen time they get, I believe, in this series. Anyone want to dispute that one? Not that I'll shoot you down. I'd say no. Asami has it a little bit worse, but... uh. Uh, she's a, she's a person that a lot of things happen mm. to, and yeah, she's the. To but her opinions and feelings on on things do change, and she comes out of her ivory tower pretty quickly. She does, but like, I feel I feel like she spends. And uh, now we're just talking about her, but like, I know she she spends a lot of her time kind of having to function as the other love interest, and she gets to be like she gets some really cool badass moments in some of the fights, and mm. I really want to see more of her. Like I, I, I'm interested to see what happens with her character from here on. I feel like we get a taste of who Mako and Bolin are, but because we got twelve episodes and we're short on time, you don't you don't get a lot of them. I actually think they could have probably just left a lot of the love triangle thing in the background and focused more on uh, Marco and Bolin. Just maybe half an episode on Marco and Bolin's upbringing. I could see that. Yeah, one of them is the one where uh, Bolin, I think it's episode five, tries, you know, takes out Cora, and then she kisses Marco, and then he cries a lot. And it's like, <laughs> okay, it's a sweet episode, but I actually would have liked a bit more sort of depth added to the characters instead. I did like Bolin's reaction to that, though. Yeah, it's <laughs> hilarious <laughs> and realistic, and uh, and he doesn't just go off and and, and look like someone cancelled CBeebies like uh, Orlando Bloom would do. He gives it a full-throated sob <laughs> and looks pathetic and dribbles and there's snot. <laughs> Great. Look what you did. You're blaming me? You kissed me. You kissed me back. There's a lot of room for these two to grow and develop yeah. further, but I think we do still get a good early taste of... We can at least determine sort of who these guys are at this point early on in their arc. Mako's the protective and socially pretty clumsy one, and uh, Bolin's the 
sort of the immature, the often protected one, but very fun, very sincere, lovable guy. So and, then uh, Ryu and Ken. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's made very clear that Mako has always been the one kind of providing and making sure that they get by and yeah. do well. And, uh, I mean, we, and we see that when Bolin gets taken at one point, we see him, Mako, slip into that protective role immediately. And uh, so it doesn't surprise me later on that when, uh, when Korra is taken, his protective nature kind of starts to reveal the affection he's been trying to keep down. Because that's just really like, it's what he does. He protects. He's been trying to keep his feelings for Korra buried, but the affection combined with the need to protect, I think, just bring it out. Mm. I think uh, the uh, episode equivalent we need is something like Barter of the Water Tribe, where we get to see how they feel about their parents. Yeah, and I'm absolutely certain we will be getting that later. Yeah, Shame okay. we haven't had it yet, but yeah, I'd, I'd look forward to it. I, mean, that, I don't even think Barter of the Water Tribe had happened by episode 12 of, uh, of Aang, had it? No, it hadn't. If we judge this series relative to the first 12 of Water, it is phenomenal what they've accomplished. Clearly, judging it against all 61 episodes of Ang is a little bit unfair. Yeah. 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 And Bolin is, I suppose, this, this series... It would be simplistic and a disservice to both characters to say he's this series' soccer, but he does provide some amusing comedy banter in the background. Important difference between Bolin and Sokka is that Sokka is a pessimist. Bolin mm. is an optimist. Very mm. true. Very true. Uh, although Bolin does require saving a few too many times. At the very end, he does actually get to a save us army, so that, that is something for his character. Apparently, uh, Bolin's appearance was inspired by the early ideas for Toph when she was going to be a boy as well. Yes. Which I like they keep bringing things back, like Naga was originally going to be Aang's pet in the original series. Yes, the polar bear. Things though, like yeah. that, yeah. Okay. Uh, Pabu and Naga, the... Um, well, now that you mention it, the uh, D. Bradley Baker voiced equivalent analog to uh, Momo and Appa. The problem is they're nowhere ne- because um, Appa and Momo have had episodes yeah. that really flesh them out. They're, I mean, they're not you know comple- overly complex characters, but you get a sense of who they are and their connections with the other characters in the series because there's only twelve episodes. Naga is just kind of the steed that's kind of adorable, mm. and Pabu's this cute little ferret thing that is funny sometimes. But you don't have that emotional connection that you have with Momo or with Appa. Yeah, I think because neither, especially on uh, Naga's part, you'd really... Is it a he or she, Naga? She. She, okay. She's just not as crucial and she's not for like transportation obviously they have cars and they have ships and such so you're not really counting on Naga the way you would count on uh, Appa for just transportation all the time so she's part of Korra's identity is part of the water tribe yeah and she's a companion to Korra certainly but it's not she's not really able to fill quite the same role at this point so I do really like Papu though adorable
Asami Sato is next. Uh, now, this young lady playing her is Sashel Gabriel, who uh, you folks will all remember from The Last Airbender, directed by M. Night Shyamalan in 2010. Genius! Astonishingly, after that war crime of a film, they said, hey, you know what, Sashel? It's not your fault. And she was a big fan of uh, Airbender beforehand, and so they gave her the role of Asami. And... She has got a lovely voice, I've got to say. And also, I think she's the arbiter of the Republic City accent. Is it just me, or does her kind of s sound recur in various other characters? She, she's like, you know, just going to take you around the city. And she's got the kind of s thing. And then when Tano comes in later, he's like, smell that? That's the Senna Luthers. It's got this kind of like overly pronounced S. I was just wondering if Republic City's now been around for long enough that everyone's getting that kind of accent in there. At least the upper echelons of uh, class. If you'd like to learn how a real pro bends, I could give you some private lessons. It makes me kind of want to listen to, uh, like, uh, for like, seeing some films that are, like, set in the kind of 20s through 50s sort of area, area and see if there's, like, a particular accent they're trying to draw on or if that was entirely unintentional. I think they are drawing a lot of the 50s. Because she looks, very, she looks very much that part. Like she looks very much from that era in her design, and uh, which looks awesome and gorgeous. The fact that we have a narrator with that announcer voice. Folks, there is some sort of electrical disturbance in the stands. Metal bender cops are dropping like bumbleflies. There appear to be masked members of the audience wielding strange devices on their hands. One of them is in the booth with me right now, folks. He is leveling one of those glove devices at me now, and I believe he is about to electrocute me. I am currently wetting my pants. That's like uh, 1940s, you know, it was on the march type stuff on the cinema reels. Asami's outfits do um, sort of tie in with the, there was something of a trend in, I think it must have been around the 20s, um, a lot of women dressed in ways that imitated people like Amelia Earhart and, mm. and um, you know, women who were actually into this burgeoning technology of transport. Um, a little that, bit more adventurous, a bit more sort of strappy with goggles and things. Yeah, or out-and-out or cross-dressing, which was also something that was um, quite popular at the time. I think of a lot of the, of the reasons Asami is so appealing to me is that there were so many ways they could have gone with her character that didn't. She didn't turn out to be a traitor in the end. She didn't turn out to just be an airhead in the end. She didn't, you know, just flounce about and scream and cry and spend her time, you know, going, well, look at me, look at me, when it turned out she wasn't going to be picked in the love triangle. She actually grew into herself as a woman. I would yeah. totally agree with that. That, that I do definitely like and it's why i'm excited to see more of her later I, I just wish i could have more of a sense of like who she is other than like like i, I understand yeah. yeah other than the heiress character i don't really feel like i have a strong like beat on what her personality is or how like uh her strengths and weaknesses and such so I, i'm looking forward to seeing a lot more of her because she's great well in many ways she's as sheltered as cora was so she kind of needs to grow into herself just as much I'm really glad, as you said, I didn't do the traitor thing. I hate that cliche so much. Mm. All the mm. way through, I was going, please don't let that happen. Please don't let that happen. Yeah. And for not being a bender, she turns out pretty badass. So Yeah. They do a great job of establishing her role in that group because 
not only is she, you know, very good at hand-to-hand combat, but she's very technology savvy. She's yeah. able to look at the uh, the battle mech that she gets into and goes, oh, this is very similar to the controls in a forklift. And, you know, immediately adapts to it and gets in control of it. And she has access to all sorts of cars and stuff like that. So it feels like she's... Her lack of bending is made up for the fact that she's very technologically savvy. Mm. Almost like uh, her lack of bending is like Toff's lack of vision. Yeah. Uh, and also she's pretty good tactically. She knew when they needed a ramp. She's an excellent driver. Has cool car, smells nice. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, there's her father, Hiroshi Sato. Now, here is the thing that actually links to Amon. I spent a long time wondering, why did Amon make up this lie about who he actually was? And with the whole scar and the firebender killed my parents, we were just coming out of a cinema and walking down the alley, and then the firebender leapt from the shadows, tried to take my mother's pearls. Um, and then I realized um, when he was talking with Sato uh, in maybe episode 10 or 11, he made that whole story up to get Sato to bankroll him. He needed the money. He needed the backing for this, you know, very vast endeavor he had. He had planned. Sato's um, wife was killed by a firebender, and so, as it just happens, sir, we share something in common. So he used that to appeal to Sato's heart, and then it worked so well. A, he had to maintain it for his public uh, appearances, but B, he used it to manipulate people. That makes a lot of sense, and I. Very glad you found that, because that, that has been something that bothered me with Amon. Like, I was always wondering why he felt the need to create the story, when I feel like yeah. his ideals alone could carry the movement if he was committed to them. But that actually makes a ton of sense. But it's never said, is it? And no. uh, this is just me inferring from a lot, but it's just, it's when Sato's like, I hate seeing my daughter with those filthy benders. And it's like, he hates them. He really can't stand them. And I realized that Amon had, had Sort seen that in him, known it, and and gone right. Here is how I can manipulate you. This is your hot button. So, um, I think that's. Do we really uh, have to explore Hiroshi as a character? I think we, you know, that's a lot well, of it. We can just say that he was voiced by Daniel Day Kim. It was the voice of Fong in the Avatar State episode. Ah. The guy Jin from Lost. Right. Yes. I recognise his name, yeah. That's the guy Jin from Lost, not the guy Jin from Lost. <laughs> All the anime fans laughing at that one. Amon's lieutenant, uh, played by Lance Henriksen, if you're going to talk about voiceovers, is never named aside from simply lieutenant. But I really hope he's actually okay after Amon bloodbent him and then threw him into some pipes. Because his character could have some, a serious arc to him because he's thrown all of his belief into Amon as well. You know, again, one of the things that makes Amon so great is he's a character who actually has the courage of his convictions and his beliefs. And Lieutenant, similarly, he can see a sensibility in what Amon wants to do. And so he throws himself into this. So when he's betrayed, this changes his character arc. And I want to see that, where that goes. Because I'm assuming the Equalists are going to be back and what... what role Lieutenant plays in that is going to be interesting. Explain the conflict between bending and non-bending peoples. I just liken it a lot to um, X-Men, 
kind of between the humans and the mutants. Except in this case, it's the underclass fighting against the upper class, whereas the mutants are very much downtrodden. In this situation, the mutants are kind of like in charge. They're in charge of society. And mm. it's a small group um, trying to bring that kind of system down and trying to bring everyone down to the same level. Um, and I, I kind of... What, one of the great things about The Equalists is that this series does a good job of showing you that they kind of have a point because they are downtrodden. They are. They don't have equal opportunities. All the uh, council members are benders. Like police as well. Yeah, all the police are benders. It feels like they're they have the monopoly. Being, yeah. yeah, they're all being told to do by this upper class of society, and they have to do as they're told. And benders have been responsible for some of the world's greatest woes. I mean. Like, less than a century ago, the Fire Nation literally tried to scorch the entire Earth Kingdom. Like, mm. there is some genuine merit to the Equalists, like, like qualms. Like, well, 170 very years ago, one of the four nations was wiped off the planet. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of common folk who get wrapped up in these big wars and conflicts, and just, and they don't, they aren't as powerful, so it's even if vendors aren't taking advantage of that, the potential is always there. And as technology has advanced so much, it's easy to see why a lot of them would start thinking that it's about time that the playing field was leveled. And Amon may be extremist, and his methods may be overly violent, but uh, it, but yeah, I love the moral ambiguity that they present in this series. They may be overly violent, and there may be a lot of um, uh, punishment involved in what he does, but he takes away the bending, and then just, as far as I can tell, just lets them go? I was going to say, they're not, he's not a murderer. He's not saying, let's kill all benders. Round them up and incarcerate them. He wants to remove bending as a factor, not necessarily kill people who happen to be benders before he did his, you know, anti-bending treatment. He's not Um, blaming them for being benders, he's just removing that factor. He did keep the police in prison, though. And, uh, was that and, while he was waiting to remove all of them? Oh, no, because he, bent, he removed their abilities anyway. I think the, the police were people who, who were actually a threat to him. And to, to be fair, like, he describes himself as the solution, and his solution is literally what was the solution in the Aang series. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's, Aang did that to a particular bender and solved a lot of the world's problems right there. So, so Amon is kind of just trying mass. to do the same thing yeah. on a larger scale. Having said that, we are a world without benders. Are we a world without conflict? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I would just like to mention, because we're talking about how the Equalists uh, handle the situation with the benders, I noticed watching it a second time round, with the exception of the airplanes and the mines, almost all of the Equalists' equipment is designed to immobilize, not kill. It's non-lethal. Yeah. Like, the, even the mecha tanks, they're not got, you know, machine guns or spear guns or what have you. They've got, you know, ropes that, you know, grapple people and electrocute them. And mind you, the airplanes them. with their bombs, the bombs are there to take out the ships, not to murder the people yeah. inside. They're, they're, um, uh, it, they're in close enough to the harbour to be able to abandon ship and then survive. Yeah. Their goal isn't to kill. It's to subdue. Which is great with the, uh, the, the age rating on this kind of show. Yeah. Because you really couldn't have a, a force who wants to go in and exterminate everyone. 
it would be very easy to present these same events with a different quote camera crew and make and make the equalist side the hero. Yeah. Very easy. There's a scene where Korra goes in to break up a fight between Tarlok's task forces who are trying to break up a riot and a group, a large group of non-benders who are just asking for their power to be turned back on. And one of them shouts at Korra, you're our Avatar 2. And that's one of the most significant sentences in the entire series because ultimately she is for the world. She is not just uh, for benders and, and she shouldn't necessarily ally herself with, um, you know, with, with the bending side of this particular city. And I mean, someone else brought up the point when early on when Korra is on Tarlok's task force and one of their missions is going in and breaking up a chi blocker dojo practice area. That part especially for me felt like a uh, like this yeah. is Bender's oh, exerting force and control over a group that like over a non-hostile currently non-hostile group. This feels a little bit gray area. Who here. are training to defend themselves against being bullied? Ex- exactly. Like it, it started really feeling like this is not as black and white as they're as Korra's approaching it. has been leveled at Korra has been the character of Tarno who very rarely gets mentioned because he seems to be sort of, sort of tertiary he's the guy that teases them on, and he's on the, uh, the wolf bats team and has his bending taken away and is terrified when it happens and he goes from being someone that uh, you, you're just like oh fucking Draco Malfoy get out of here to actually feeling really genuinely sorry for and then he seems so kind of pathetic afterwards and so sort of where he took away my bending as there's kind of not much point me being around here anymore and there's nothing for me to do. Now the complaint leveled was wouldn't it be really interesting to see Tano try to reintegrate himself into society sans bending? Again, they could do that later. But it would have been good to get a little bit more of him as a character because he's got a, he actually does have an, an arc and a, and a really kind of horrible thing happens to him which changes his character. I think that could potentially have been an interesting alternate way for them to go, but uh, I don't think it's necessarily inherently a stronger route. I think it's kind of an either-or. Something with, to do with both that character and with Korra is that a lot of their identity is really built up. I mean, a lot of who they are, yeah. are is built into their bending. And, and Korra especially, like the Avatar, is like a big part of who she is. And you see when that, like, that disappears for a little while that it really wrecks her. So I don't think it would be very easy for them to for either of them to just bounce back right away and redefine themselves. Yeah, I suppose if Tono had found a place for himself, you'd be like, oh, come on, Korra, at the end. You know, it's not the end of the world. You can do other stuff. And you are supposed to feel what she's feeling at that point. So maybe avoiding Tano was a good idea. Yeah, it's something that could have been cool. But like, I don't know if necessarily they should have gone that way instead. Hmm. If you consider how um, integral being or having the ability to bend is or seems to most people, they you know they have the whole thing in Legend of Ang about um, 
Haru, the fact that it's it it's something that's so integral about himself, he can't can you know he can't not do it, even though it's it's something that puts him in danger. So you're effectively looking at somebody who's lost a limb or you know lost the use of a sense. They would need extremely intensive counselling. There's post-traumatic stress disorder involved in that kind of thing. It's not something that you could expect them to just shake it off and go, well, you know, you, you still have something valuable to offer. It's about what they've lost, not what they can no longer do. Even for Katara, like when Tylee temporarily chi-blocks her, she's terrified of it. Mm, yeah. yeah. Oh, I never mentioned there is a fantastic shot at the end of Season 2 Earth where Tylee takes away Katara's bending and she falls to the ground and her water skin has been left open and a pool of water forms around her. It is symbolic of her bleeding out at this point and it's a really powerful shot as, the, as it cranes upwards. Yeah. What are the changing attitudes towards advanced bending? Now, by that I mean lightning bending. How has that come into play? Metal bending. Um, they use the lightning bending in the power plants to actually power electricity to the city. Yeah. It's become far more practical. It's about how we, how can we use this to advance our civilization. It's gone less from being something that some special person discovered and more to becoming kind of a standard thing that is more trained. Yeah. Same with uh, metal bending. As you find out in Promise, Toph opens up a metal bending school. And that's pretty much where that starts. It's interesting that Metal bending seems to be something that you can only learn if you join the metal bending police, whereas mm. lightning seems to be something that any old person who can firebend can now use. Because Marco isn't exactly a you know an important person, but he knows how to lightning bend, whereas metal bending isn't something Bolin can do. Yeah. It could was... be that the lightning bending is something he's been trained to do as part of his job, though, because yeah. he, he works at the um, the power plant, and the environment there seems to be particularly unpleasant and hot and dangerous and something that, that people wouldn't necessarily want to do. He's, it's not a, a respected job, clearly. So it, it does kind of make sense that that might be something that they will only train you to do if you want to go and work at that place. I'm kind of astonished that he's so underpaid for that, though. They're, they're, they're on the breadline, pretty much. They have to give all of the money they earn in pro-bending to it just for rent. I, I might be wrong, but doesn't he only get that job because I need money to get into the uh, bending championship? Oh, yeah. is he actually... Does he not he normally says, have oh, I've got some good money down at the power plant. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we're some good money. Ah, right. That's what I mean. does the stuff on the street. I imagine I you can't get to being a star pro-bender without knowing your element pretty well. Yeah, I mean, even Amon later says that you are quite skilled. No one usually gets the, has gotten the jump on me before. Although Boatlin can't metal bend, not that, that. he'd really need it. But you don't actually need it for uh, pro bending. Yeah, as for like metal bending being the like kind of all about law enforcement, I wonder if that just kind of happened sort of organically as like Toff started the school. Toff gets put in charge of uh, security and like kind of police force, and thus the police force kind of becomes a metal bending sort of mm. institution. Speaking of people setting up fighting forces, there seems to be some vague link between the equalists, at least the guys in the masks with the uh, electric sticks and the chi blocking, and the Kyoshi warriors. Mm. And since Ty Lee joined them at the end, there's there's that link right there. Interesting. Okay, um, now the next one's supposed to be Lin Beifong, but I'm actually going to ask about music. 
the track team, because we didn't really talk about it too much in the previous uh, episodes. We've had four to talk about it. I think the music in Legend of Aang was superb, especially towards the end, and the finale where they got full strings mm. was excellent. I think Legend of Korra's soundtrack leaves Legend of Aang's soundtrack in the dust. Uh, it's honestly one of the best soundtracks I've ever heard for a TV show. Um, the way they've managed to take old themes from the original series and integrate it, but not to the point where it feels like they're just, you know, being lazy and relying on those themes to evoke an emotional response. It has its own iconic pieces. I especially love Cora's theme, and there's some jazz uh, jazz numbers in there, and lots of different kinds of influences in here. And it feels like they have an ac- uh, access to a full o- orchestra for this entire series as well. Whereas with uh, Ang, it felt like that was only towards the end. Um, it's phenomenal piece of work. Yeah. Throwing the uh, the jazz in that you mentioned, there was a, a, some, there's some very sort of Django Reinhardt style pieces, which again really help with the Bioshock feel to it. It feels like the little bits of jazz give it even more of a sense of place, like it's actually now reaching a time and a culture that we can comprehend because it's actually still within living memory for for some people. I just really like um, some uh, specific uses of the soundtrack to build tension. The Mm. equalists, when they're fighting, have this uh, theme where it's drums and cymbals playing. But I really like that before they come onto the scene, like, for example, when Lin Bei Fong's just standing there ready to, to, uh, to defend the air temple and the equalists haven't reached the temple yet, you can just hear the cymbals in the background just lightly and then as soon as they come over the horizon then the drums kick in and it's just just so well integrated with the visuals that you're presented much like um you know towards the back half of legend of ang but to a greater degree here what were we talking about recently was it a batman where uh, oh no was it that was it it was bane that Bane has these sort of tribal drums to him that then go boom, 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 boom later on when he's actually, like, like when, when you know he's around, they're sort of playing very quietly. So there's actually quite a few links between Bane in The Dark Knight Rises and Amon. We'll talk about him later. What you said about the, the jazz and the whole... I suppose this is more to do with the atmosphere of the piece, really, but the, the era in which it's set and the music is a absolutely an integral part of this um, as well as all the little sound effects that go with the the showreel announcer and and all that kind of thing Um, one of the things that I love about that is it makes you feel like they could carry on technologically advancing this world and it could end up parallel with ours, that that Mm. in the world that we know there could be an avatar 
Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I was, that was just yeah. sinking in, I think. <laughs> <laughs> An avatar with an iPod. Yeah. Avatar in the 80s. Have like with a, a drive with a hoverboard. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking Avatar in the 70s with like a disco soundtrack. No, they must not do the disco dancing! <laughs> the next Seriously, Avatar has button an topic. That is your trigger, yeah. <laughs> next character, appropriately, Lin Bei Fong, daughter of Toph. Love a light daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is not a visual medium, so you can't see me pointing two fingers at my eyes and then at the door in an angry fashion. <laughs> Played by Mindy Sterling, who folks may remember as Frau Farbissina from the uh, Austin Powers films. You only found that out today, Sharon. Yes. Sending the club! Yes. She's very similar to Toth, except I would say she's more feminine than Toth. She feels more like, this might be a strange thing to say, but she feels like a female head teacher to me. Yeah. In that That's not strange she, at all. She's very strict. She's very powerful. She has that presence, but she's still, she's still a woman. She's not got that tomboy quality that Toph has. She doesn't actively pick her nose. I think yeah. a lot of that, though, is that she is an adult woman and Toph has the androgyny yeah. of childhood. Also, Toph, in many respects, was a little bit immature for her age. Mm. She's kind of gotten stuck at eight or something. The, the, the best way I can describe it is that Toph is, I feel like, in some ways, actively trying to reject her gender roles, whereas yeah. Lin Bei Fong is a warrior woman and emphasis on the word woman um it's odd because she doesn't have any children but she does have that kind of maternal quality to her in that she's trying to protect everyone and she's fiercely protective of her friends and allies as if um they've become what her children you know because she's never had the opportunity to have children she behaves that way around close friends and close family or she might have chosen not to have children because she feels her protective abilities are better directed towards the entire city. True. Um, you might want to cut this bell because I don't want to upset Josh or just going against everything he just said, but apparently the creators of the show said Lynn did not want to have kids. That's the difference of opinion which hurt Tenzin's relationship with her. That would make sense that Tenzin was like, look, I don't want... you know." I, I've got to have... I literally have to have airbending children. I can see how that'd be rather difficult for them to get through. Again, really looking forward to some episodes on that. Scenario at the beginning, where she starts off with the... I mean, like the, the fingers pointing like that. A, it's a little reference to, hey, I've got my eye on you. And secondly, it's, you mess with the bull, son, you get the horns. From Breakfast Club again, a film they clearly adore. Uh, it's this kind of thing that... I mean, you made the point about the head teacher. She has got a teacherly, you know, you've just come to this high school, Cora, and she's been sent to the principal already. <laughs> yeah. Know, don't screw up. Yeah. And, um, and then you don't meet her again properly for quite a while. But then s- twice in this series, she endangers her own life to, uh, to keep Cora and the, and the others alive. And the point where she actually actively, willingly sacrifices herself to get the airbenders away is, is one of the absolute high points of the series for me so far. 
that the way the music soars up as you realise what she's doing. And the moment right after that, where she's face to face with Amon. Tell me where the Avatar is, and I'll let you keep your bending. I won't tell you anything, you monster. Very well. Now, that kind of loyalty, that strength that that character has to willing to sacrifice a very integral part of herself in order to save family and friends. Mm. Which, one of the only bits I'll pick with a show is where it just makes that feel not so big when suddenly they already have the airbenders. When you're like, no, we saw them get away, they just happened to have them, you don't see how it happened, yeah. they're just there. It's like, well, that was pointless, then wasn't anyway. it? Well, it's the Nazis. You can't get away from the Nazis. They'll get you anyway. Um... There is a motherly side to Lynn, though, like, it's, I, which I felt most strongly when they go to try to find Cora and she finds all of her uh, fellow police yeah. in, in prison and discovers they've all lost their bending already. There's real, you can see there's a lot of, like, kind of a real, like, sorrowful kind of motherly feel to them. And she just says, like, I, I, I'm so sorry. Oh, yeah. It's very much the police force is her family. I didn't just want to make excuses, by the way, Kai, and say, ah, well, you know, da, da, da. when they do arrive on stage, uh, there's that horrible pounding in your heart where you're like, oh, God, he could actually at this point succeed in wiping out airbenders. Then what? So it's kind of that, that was going to be an inevitability. That's the the part where you're like, okay, the stakes have never been higher. Well, a lot of people say that uh, that um, Lynn get. We'll deal with that later. But a lot of people say that Lynn getting her bending back at the end diminishes her sacrifice as well. Again, I disagree. Yeah, I disagree with that. To be honest. Um, while we're on the subject of Lynn, uh, mainly because she's involved in some of the most spectacular action sequences in this series, I just really want to talk about some. Uh, sequences she's in mm -hmm. uh, for example the end of episode 6 uh, there's a fight sequence when uh, Cora is trying to chase after Amar who's just left in the airship and uh, Lin Bei Fong is desperately trying to help her the animation uh, where Lin Bei Fong is using her metal bending with the cables and flinging Cora into the air and then flinging all these equalists all over the place and all that stuff with her metal bending and her, the, those cables that come out of her arm are, is so beautifully shot and so well choreographed. It's some of the best animation I've ever seen. Yeah, the fights are exceptionally well directed at this point. Like if you look at the um, like look at the early fight between Zuko and General Zhao, which is a pretty good fight at the time, and compare that not just with like the animation and production value but just like the shots chosen and the direction and everything and fights in this series it's everything is perfectly clear but it looks amazing similarly the uh, the, the scene when uh, it's one of the first proper action scenes for Korra where she engages uh, she and it's, it's her and Marco uh, up against some equalists and it's only a small scale fight relative to what's happening later on but the camera actually pans around and circles Korra and this equalist with the, with these you know high kicking matrix style action with each other and that, that's, that's astonishing for, for, for TV animation 
That could not have happened in the Aang series. We've already seen what it took to actually animate these various uh, airships, and there's that kind of sort of jerkiness of of, um, of that. I mean, what what actual technique would they have used? Um, you know, animation expert, how, how would they have done this? The the rotating uh, around the uh, the cells. I'm not, I'm only kind of guessing. I'm guessing maybe a little bit of rotoscope work to kind of like figure out the work in the 3D space. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably shooting a good bit of reference. And honestly, the technology just keeps on getting better. Mm. and new techniques are discovered, which is, I would imagine, and I may be wrong, that the budget is not significantly higher per episode with Korra than it was for Aang. I think the technology has just gotten better in the t- in this time. They're able to do more with the money that they have. Definitely. But they're building on decades' worth of uh, anime combat. I just really enjoy watching this creative team get better and better at what they do and it does feel like the more these guys work together the more they have an understanding of what they can do and how they can push themselves Mm. definitely I like how they've carried on in this series the um, seismic sense Mm -hmm. obviously she's not blind Toph still obviously taught it to her I'm just glad that's there because it's a brilliant animation it's a brilliant idea I really enjoy that She's very much continuing her mother's lineage. You could actually figure that if this took place slightly less, like if it was only 50 years after Aang and Aang had died a little bit earlier, that an actual old Toph would be like this. Yeah. It's, it's relatively consistent with her character. I do actually like the fact that it's not just, hey, here's those old characters and now they're yeah. all old. You get the you look forward to what's to come, but also yeah. you look forward to things that get revealed about what's already happened. In a way, depending on how long Korra and then its subsequent series may last, you can see the legend of Aang as the Hobbit to the Lord of the Rings of the greater story. Mm. Now that is an interesting prospect. The bit where she puts on her armour reminds me of Iron Man. (laughs) Not the only Iron Man bit in the entire series. (laughs) I am Iroh Man. General Iroh can goddamn fly... With his firepower. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, pretty much he's got his hands behind him like Iron Man. It's like, oh, man. Yeah, so I, I want to see... Uh, let's, we can mention Iroh at this point. I want to see more of this guy because he's only Action Jackson at this point. But, yeah, what, what an entrance. Jesus, at the end of episode 10. Where, this is just after Lin Bei Fong's had her bending taken away. General, I just received a wire from the Avatar. She says Amon and his forces have gained control of the city. How do you want to respond? Tell her we will be arriving in three days' time, and that I look forward to winning back Republic City together. As you wish, General Iroh. Wow! And it's Dante Bosco doing the voice! Yep. I just remember I turning turning to Lyra, open mouthed and going, "Who's that?" And she went, "That's Zuko." I went, "No, it's his grandson." <laughs> I had several difficulties uh, throughout this, like when we first started to convince her that Katara, old Katara, was not Gram Gram, but actually Katara. She just she couldn't comprehend it. She's all of four years old. But she's actually, this has been instrumental in helping her understand time, how people live, 
you know, they have children, they grow older, they die, they have children, they leave a legacy. Just to, just for folks who've been listening to Digital Cowboys for a long, long time may remember me first announcing that Sharon was pregnant. Just FYI, Lyra's starting her first day of big school tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, she will be bringing along news of Avatar to all the other kids and, you know, kind of strong-arming them all into watching it. Now, with regards to Yacon, one of the many mob bosses in the city, I can't, I can't remember what the names of all the gangs are. There's, obviously, there's the Triple Threat Triads, the Agni Kais, I remember, who are, I'm assuming, yeah. the Fire Nation gangs. Uh, are there any others? Um, yeah, there's Red Monsoon Triads as well. Red Monsoon? Could they be Water waterbenders? Yeah. yeah. Very likely. The Triple Threat Triads are the biggest because they're accumulation of all three. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Yacon voiced even more gruffly by Clancy Brown. It was odd seeing him because you know I was cheering him, but at the same time hating his character. Yeah, it far more than Long Feng, who was you know sneery. This guy's actually genuinely sadistic mm. and insane and cruel to children and possibly the most. Is he worse than Ozai? I, I don't think he really was planning committing genocide. If he could have done for, to further his cause, he probably would have. I think their moral compasses are about in line with each other. Yeah. Uh, uh, he's, it's interesting because um, Yukon isn't the villain of this series, and he's far more similar to what Ozai is, and it, it almost highlights how grey Amon and Tarlok are by mm. comparison, and, and how much more mature the conflict is in this series. I have another question. Do you really need a full moon to enact bloodbending? No. No, I it, bl- the full moon makes waterbenders more powerful, so yeah, I assume that's the reason why suddenly bloodbending is a lot easier. I imagine the re- it's an extremely hard skill to learn. Um but they pinned Yakon's um reprieve in the trial on you can't do bloodbending if there's no full moon. I think that Katara had perpetuated this myth that uh Hama told her that because she'd never tried bloodbending outside of a full moon. Yeah. I actually think that it's that Hama was not that good of a, a waterbender and required the full moon to boost her abilities to be able to bloodbend. Katara suggested as much that Katara was definitely the stronger of the two. Mm. Yeah. So uh yeah, it's it strikes me as the kind of thing where like the first people who discover it discover that they can do it when they're at their most powerful in the full moon and just assume that that's the only time it can be done. Yeah. Whereas later more powerful people just like with metal bending and lightning bending, they figure out how to it becomes easier. People figure out how to do it in other ways. And there's something very symbolic and ceremonial about the idea of blood bending only happening at a full moon like, you know, we're going to do it on this night and it's got to, we've got to really mean it. But being able to walk around with this... I mean, I would say loaded gun, but everyone who's a bender has the ability to kill someone else with their powers. This is far, far more insidious. It's the Um. only form of bending that's been made illegal, which says a lot. I think 
the thing with firebending and earthbending and all the other forms of bending is that they are only dangerous when there is the intention of hurting somebody else behind it. Except for firebending, which, uh, as you say, we can go out of control if not controlled. But bloodbending... Its only use is to inflict your will onto somebody else. There is no positive effect uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. to bloodbending. Hold off. Have you read the bloodbending wiki? No, I haven't. I completely get what you're saying. We've not seen bloodbending yet used for positive means. It says on the wiki that feasibly, and obviously this is just people desperate to write something about something we know very little about, feasibly you could keep someone who has been cut badly from bleeding out. You could keep someone's heart beating if they'd had a cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. Because it's so linked with healing, it's just on the cusp where you... It's possible that in later episodes of Korra, someone who has the ability to bloodbend may keep someone alive with it. There'll be a shades of grey aspect to this. The worst thing you could do to someone may actually save lives. But carry on. Sorry, man. No, it's, it's interesting because I never considered that. I just thought of bloodbending as this way of controlling people like puppets. Mm. I never thought of the positive applications. Um, that said, it, it, it very much feels like, unlike other forms of bending, it's hard to see the positive side of bloodbending. Yeah, because it's only ever used by crazy people. There's a sense, if a firebender is fighting another bend, like an earthbender or something else, there's a sense that there's equal, like an equal playing field, and whoever wins that fight, it's because that person is more skillful. With mm. bloodbending, it completely negates that completely, because nobody, apart from somebody who goes into the avatar state, can beat bloodbending. Uh, or, or a more powerful bloodbender, in yeah. case Katara. Yeah. Yeah, then we get this kind of sci-fi thing about... Well, for a start, we get the flashback, which is what so many of us were waiting for. Like, oh my God, we finally get to see Aang with his Michael Dante DiMartino bald head and underbeard at 40 years old. And we get to see an old soccer, and we get to see uh, an old toff. Uh, old, I say... Everyone out there who's 40 years old, apologies. Older than when they were children. <laughs> <laughs> We were really looking forward to the uh, flashbacks, all of us. We wanted to see what Aang and Sokka and Toph were like at 40. We wanted to see how they were handling themselves, you know, what, what the dynamic was like at that point, whether they were all still friends. And we get this little flash and this, you know, really horrible scenario. And then Aang has to go into the Avatar state to take away his bending. Now, next question. Why did Aang and Ozai glow blue and red respectively in the first instance of energy bending? And it doesn't happen at any other point. I personally think the first instance is more of a metaphorical representation of the battle that's going on internally. And actually, that's not actually what happened. If you were to just look at it, if like Sokka were to look at what was actually going on, it was just two men standing there and with Aang's tattoos glowing. So it's more just of a graphical representation of these two indomitable wills battling each other. Yeah. Good call. That makes sense. That explains why what Amon's doing when he takes away people's bending is a form of blood bending. He's not actually energy bending at all. What he's doing is he's closing off channels within their minds, within their bodies, 
not within their souls or spirits um, that link them to their bending. So it's kind of like he's flicking a switch, uh, but the switch has to already be engaged, which is why he can't turn off Cora's air bending. He can only turn off the three elements that she's already got on. Essentially, it's like internal chi blocking. Yeah, and permanent uh, as well. Because even though Katara is a bloodbender, she can't unswitch that. Mm. I wonder if Amon could. That is a good question, though. I'm expecting yeah. that even with Amon gone, he's going to have a big impact on the future seasons. And mm. yeah. find, find like, because I don't think the Equalist movement's going to die off completely, and and we don't really know what he was up to in between running away and coming exactly. back as the enigmatic leader. And at which point he probably discovered how to do this weird uh, energy bending emulation sort of thing. Yeah. Where he learned that from could be a very interesting thing to approach later. Even though he's been disavowed, the movement he started has become something else entirely. Legend, Mr. Wayne. Again, this, this, it ties in with what Batman was trying to do in the, uh, the Nolan films. Um, and, and, and with Bane as well, in that Amon was trying to affect people's hearts and minds. Now, for me, Bane became less interesting when it became about the bomb, but Amon never faltered in the fact that he, even though there were, he was using deception, he believed in this movement. It, well, he was trying to create a symbol. The mask means more than the person underneath it. Yeah, it's a like a symbol. This, you know, a Jesus figure that these followers can get behind, so that even when he's gone, I, that mask, that symbol, that hooded figure has lost none of its potency. And I could see somebody else taking on the guise of a mon, but being a genuine non-bender instead of a fraud. It's like one letter away from Anon, Anonymous, and then you got those millions of dudes in their Viva Vendetta masks. He has gotten the ball rolling, for sure. Like it, They may not rally behind him anymore, but a lot of people have started seriously considering what he was preaching. So it's going to be hard to get that idea out of a lot of people's heads. If anything, with him gone, the Equalists are more dangerous, because yeah. with his existence, they had a way of getting rid of benders in a relatively non-violent way but now mm. he's gone it it could be complete anarchy in uh, republic city with people but, being attacked at random especially since he didn't actually tell anybody how he was doing it he, everyone's going to have to take Cora's word on that it was a part of blood bending Tarlok is a character who at first I thought was just going to be an irritating politician type character yeah. who wasn't going to be that important for the overall arc of the story. I thought he was going to be a tertiary a tertiary villain at best. Um, at that point, I thought Tarno was going to be a bigger villain in the overall series than him. Um, it, it turns something out, very Star Wars prequels about him to begin with yeah he ends up being one of the more fascinating characters in the series mm. um, especially when you start introducing the concept of bloodbending and his history because of his relationship with his father both Amon and, and Tarlok are desperately trying to escape the fate that Yakone gave them and 
they kind of accidentally end up fulfilling their own their own, the the thing that their father wanted them to do anyway. Mm. Tarlock was trying to be as different from his father as he could be. He wasn't a gangster. He was a politician. He wasn't trying to collect wealth and money. He, he, I think, felt like he was genuine, genuinely trying to help people. He was going about it the wrong way, but there was a sense that he was trying to be the people's hero. But he ended up falling down the same pit his father did, and he became a manipulator and became a monster. For a little while there, he does embody exactly what Amon claims the bending community is. Like, it starts with just him sending Korra's task force in to just take out chi-blocking dojos, and then eventually builds to where, like, even, as we discussed before, the point where he's uh, arresting dozens and dozens of innocent civilians who are just non-benders. And it doesn't even really even start that way. He just kind of becomes the problem that Amon is there to fight against. But he does have quite an interesting turn later. It's very much a case of... Um the more power he gained politically, the more corrupt he became. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Because I had the fortunate experience to be able to watch Cora as it was airing, mm. I got to be mm. able to be a part of conversations and speculation that would happen between episodes. I was going I, to ask you guys about that. One of the theories that was developing um, was that Tarlock was actually a mon. Yeah. And yeah. all the actions he was taking were to further reinforce what Amon was saying. So he was deliberately taking the actions yeah. that a, a, a bender that Amon would describe um, in order to get more non-benders on Amon's side. Mm. Um, obviously, that's not how it plays out. But I think it was interesting that people were already making the connections between, between those two show, both yeah. characters. I did as well. There was a time, there were a few episodes in the middle where I was starting to suspect that might be where they went with it. And I'm glad it's not the way they went with it. But uh, they did keep you guessing. You, you were surprised when you found out what actually the case was. One of the things that, do you remember that while I was freaking out about uh, Josh? Oh, yes. Um, Somebody had posted up a picture of a uh, hideously scarred person who looked like uh, Tenzin taking off the uh, Amon mask and I just accidentally seen it looking you know browsing through Korra pictures on Google Images I was like no what have I just done no no and so I, then I was like wait okay how could that actually work then is it possible and I'd completely forgotten about the fact that Tenzin claimed to be one of three children I thought what if there's a fourth child an airbender but an airbender who went wrong and I thought it all makes sense because Amon's abilities all seem to be about evasion whenever another uh, another bender's attacking him he dodges out of the way he ducks he dives and he swoops in and then he just takes them out in the style of ang so he's all about non-combat and I, I was thinking wait so if he's one of ang's four kids and he realized the futility of trying to maintain a balance in a world where there were no airbenders and the fact that they're tiny little sliver of this race couldn't possibly survive faced with that choice he decided let's get rid of all benders even the playing field and I thought that actually kind of makes a lot of sense and it turned out it wasn't the case and it surprised me that picture is really well put together it convinced a lot of people that it was real but it was completely photoshopped it was a fake 
Um, I because I stumbled upon it while watching the series as well, and I thought, oh my god, is this leaked? Is this leaked from a later episode that hasn't been released yet? And it wasn't the case at all. Somebody's very skillful with Photoshop. But I, I don't know. I just I kind of like tying him in, up with Ang would have made it kind of interesting. I think it's worth mentioning the uh, how Amon appears initially. Mm. We learn a lot more about uh, Amon that through the through their history in the last couple of episodes. But early on, he is a really fascinating character. A lot like you said, a lot like Bane begins. Like a mm. very charismatic, powerful, mysterious, idealistic character. Relatively like softly spoken as well. Someone who's yeah. always gurning and chewing up the camera. So led, is, uh, yeah, led very much by their convictions. And someone who other people believe in. And he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't kill his own men. I think that he relatively gently scolds them when they let Korra uh, get away up in the uh, mountains. Yeah, he is a genuinely interesting and fascinating villain. Like just the before you know anything else about him, just the way that he is powerful, seemingly without bending at all. He can evade. He can he can hold his own toe to toe, and fearless as well. And fearless. He just seems like this guy could really achieve his goals. And I don't entirely know where he came from, where he got these ideas, or what's like what the source of his power is. But like that makes him all the scarier. Mm. For me, the thing that makes him fascinating is that unlike Ozai and unlike Azula, I don't think Amon is crazy. He's not psychotic. He's not a sociopath. Uh, he's extreme for sure, but I think he thinks about things in a very logical. And in some cases, in a very emotional way, he does have empathy towards other people. And a lot of what he's doing is very altruistic. It's not for him, it's for everyone else. And he believes he's doing this for the greater good. And everything he's doing, uh, like bloodbending and all that, is just a necessary evil to reach this better tomorrow. It makes him scarier because he's thinking logically. He's not crazy. He's a sane person who's come to this conclusion. I agree. That is, it's easy to dismiss crazy as just being crazy, but when it is just coming from, I have something I believe in very strongly, I have the power and the will to achieve it, that is actually a lot scarier, and, and can be. I'd say uh, that by the dictionary definition here, socially speaking, he's crazy. But that doesn't mean he's not extremely in control of himself. I, I just, I don't think he takes pleasure in inflicting pain mm. the same way an Azula or an Ozai does. It almost, it's almost like he, when he uses bloodbending towards the end of the finale, it's almost like he's backed off into a corner and yeah. he has no other choice. Um, it, it's either do this or not be able to achieve my goal. And I don't know. I, when, when he holds up Lieutenant, he doesn't just efficiently go right, you're poof. He holds him up and twists him. That's the part where I, the one thing, I'm a little disappointed in how Amon's character resolves, and that was one of the main things yeah. about it. That I, it's at that point that he stopped, that kind of undercuts his idealistic appearances and just reduces him to a much more straightforward bad guy villain yeah. just because he got caught. Like I feel like a, the guy who we've been seeing so far who is so like powered by the way he sees the world would not kill one of his lieutenants just because he was found out. 
he's willing to bend those convictions under certain circumstances, and that kind of undercuts him a little bit. Um, I know what you mean, Dan, but I I have to say I think to an extent, um, and it is I think simplified because it's a it's not a kids show, but it's they've they've got to keep children in mind when they're presenting the way these things are resolved but that is still relatively consistent with the way he's developed and particularly when you look at how he reacted as a child when he was when when he had all this enforced on him by his father he started out trying to resist it and particularly trying to defend his brother that point at which Tarlock says he suddenly seemed to become very cold and detached Mm. that to me is the point at which he he decided the only way he's going to get through this is to cut himself off emotionally now if somebody does that and they do that consistently for a long period of time those emotions don't go away they just get repressed and and crushed and eventually if something happens to pop the top off that it's likely that they will explode in a very violent and aggressive way Um, and so although in that particular scenario where he's going after one of his own, it doesn't quite make sense. I can see where the um, the aggression and almost the relish in inflicting pain, which he's never, ever displayed before, would come from, because he'd, he'd had to cut himself off from that. Um, also, he's just had his real identity, one, something he hasn't even really thought about for years, shouted out at him in front of the entire crowd, and he had to hold it together. Mm, he's definitely yeah. backed into a corner, and well, like you said earlier, he relies on Sato, a very anti-bender man, for his funding and for being able to run this whole movement he's been engineering, so keeping his bender identity a secret is important for his movement, and it may be that his convictions could lead him to... He believes in the movement so much that he is willing to bend on these <laughs> is willing to bend yeah. on these beliefs a little bit for the greater good, just to make sure that his cause is not completely sunk. I'm not entirely sure that Amon was taking pleasure uh, from twisting up um, the lieutenant. When the lieutenant comes into the room, Amon looks at the screen like he's suddenly scared, like, oh no, not him, not he hasn't found out. And when he grabs um, the lieutenant, he says, um, some, you, were, you, you, uh, you served me well, lieutenant. It's, it's almost like Amon actually respected this guy. And I don't, I'm not entirely sure that he was just deliberately trying to inflict pain. It felt more like that was his way of just gripping people. Like he was doing the same thing to Cora and Marco. That's just how, that's his default bloodbending grip is to just completely paralyze whoever he's uh, gripped onto um, and for me one of the defining characteristics of Amon and one of the things I find the most scary about him is that although he's somewhat of a uh, somewhat of a sympathetic villain his cause is understandable he is completely and utterly determined and he is not going to just sit there and cry about how you're going to care about me you're going to sympathize for me no i have a job to do and if you're in my way i am going to do whatever i it is necessary to achieve my goal and i can fully see him being able to bend um his moral compass to achieve what he considers the greater good he's already lied to all these people he's already used blood blood bending to fool people, to take people's bending away. I don't think this step is as 
a, a bigger departure from his character, as maybe some people have implied. I think you, you've actually, that's very convincing. You make a very good point there. I think, I think for me, there was something in to the mystery to him that when he was more fully revealed, it wasn't quite what I expected. And it, that's actually something that I've been annoyed at many people who have negative things to say about the show is that most of their complaints are just things didn't turn out the way they thought they would or expected or Mm -hmm. thought that maybe they should have. They're not really judging what happened on its own merits. That's not a legitimate complaint. (laughs) Exactly. So I I will, you've explained that very well. I will give you that. I mean, if it was everything turned out how I thought it was, that's a legitimate complaint. Everything was totally predictable. One of the biggest things I've loved about him is the fact that he's taken this one ideal, this one thing he learnt from his father, the fact that the Avatar took his bending and it made him weak and he's chased this one ideal throughout his whole life by the fact that he's found chi benders, don't know where, where he learnt that from, we're going to find that out later, hopefully, and the fact that he managed to manipulate his blood bending into actually cutting off people's ability to bend mm. he's take he's obsessed with making people equal and this is the whole thing that's defined him so the fact that when his lieutenant comes in and finds that he's no longer bend he it's not a fact it's not a ma- malicious thing it's the fact that i can't let this person get away he will ruin everything i've worked so hard to come about yeah I, well, I think we're all obsessing over the whole the, the cruelty to the lieutenant thing. I think ultimately, it's, when it comes down to it, bloodbending is just a very deeply unpleasant thing, and it's resplendent of Darth Vader choking people. Let's face it. Um, uh, one, th- I like the fact that Tim he still has this bond with his brother. The fact that he's sort of kept him as a prize up in the air temple, away from everything that's going on. Still trying to protect him, maybe. And he shows true regret over the fact that he shouldn't have left him all those years ago and he should have taken him with him. I get a feeling that Amon, as much as a big show he puts on for all his followers, he doesn't actually hate benders. He just hates bending. So it's not the people he wants to get rid of. It's just about getting rid of that advantage that certain people have over others but here's the interesting thing the way he does it with the uh, blocking of their um, of that part of their mind that brain with his blood bending doesn't eliminate that in and even if your energy bending doesn't eliminate that factor in your children Ang actually took away Yukon's um, uh, bending entirely and then Yukon went on to have two children who were both powerful waterbenders so even if Amon succeeds in uh, Republic City and it becomes an entirely non-bender city, and even if he can spread that to the entire world, and every single bender in the entire world gets... I mean, he's going to have to basically teach huge amounts of waterbenders to bloodbend all of these people, but he's going to need to keep waterbenders around to do this. And the ultimate end is... They're going to have to be working every day because every new child born will be born to people who still have bending in their genes. So every child is going to have to whoop, remove bending, keep all the water benders around. It's going to be constantly unbalanced. 
You can't maintain that in a world where nature is saying, no, benders are going to exist. And it's being passed down genetically. Obviously, the airbenders are all gone because Sozin killed them all. But unless you murder all of the benders, you can't eliminate that in the human race in the Five Nations. That's why extremism never works and it always Mm. eventually undoes itself because you just can't maintain that level of extreme belief and an extreme attitude to a certain cause. Well, it all ends in genocide. It all ends in genocide or compromise or being killed like Hitler in a bunker. Fire Lord Ozai, for example, he wanted to dominate the world. You know, something was passed down to him by his father and his father's father. But he reached the conclusion, ultimately, that they were not going to accept the Fire Nation culturally and he would simply eliminate everyone. His new world would rise from the ashes. This ideal that gets stuck in the heads of crazed, exceptionally powerful dictators, that they can reshape the world. Hitler didn't want the world to be a giant concentration camp. He wanted it to be like Rome, this incredible, flourishing, but very, very ordered society, where only the people that were accepted under his very narrow rule book were around. I was just going to say, Hitler's ideal and what he was trying to work towards, the ultimate irony of that, of course, is that he did not fit into it. No. He wasn't blue-haired. Blue-haired? <laughs> <laughs> he could have been in some he, anime if he was. You're he correct. wasn't, you know, yeah, he wasn't Aryan. He wasn't blonde-haired, blue-eyed, German god-like figure that he was trying to, to work towards. And Sozin's ideals, ultimately, I mean, he'd, he'd wiped out the air nomads. He was obviously working on the waterbending continuation by... Uh, imprisoning and then ultimately just executing every waterbender he could find. The next step from that is no more waterbenders will be born. Then presumably he was going to work on to um, eliminating all the earthbenders from the Earth Kingdom. Where does that then leave him? He's then got to start trying to wipe out firebenders. Who aren't firebending in the right way. Yeah, but and then... They've all got to produce blue flame, otherwise they're not clean enough. Yeah. But then, then where does it end? Ultimately? You paint yourself into a corner. It's all coming down to the, the, the remit of balance and imbalance. Mm. And what, what Amon was trying to do was take a world that he considered to be unbalanced and balance it. Whereas what he would try to do would make it more unbalanced. It's the problem with being having a single vision is that you're kind of blind to everything else. Mm. He has this goal that he is so determined to reach that he can't see any other like solutions any other compromises that they could make it's just become his complete obsession and focus watching the speedboat scene this time I felt very sad but also kind of frustrated because knowing that this is going to go on those were the two most complex and interesting characters that are gone like that Now, conforming to movie standards, if you don't see the bodies, they're not dead. Uh, If it's an explosion and it happens a long way away, they're not dead. So they can write their way out of that. Um, But it was such an emotional scene that it almost seems cheap if they do write their way out of that. Sorry, that's a pretty gutsy thing to show in a kid's show. Oh, hell yeah. I was genuinely taken aback by how subtle that scene is. You know, it ends in an explosion, but... The scene seems so innocent and kind of just these two guys reminiscing about old times and Amon shedding a tear 
about uh, Tarlock talking about it will just be like the good old days. Mm. And it just uses very clever visual storytelling to tell you exactly what Tarlock is thinking at that moment. He looks at the gas canister, he looks at the glove, and then a couple of seconds later he makes that choice. And it's just really powerful. And like you say, Alex, because it was so ballsy to kill these characters and i i really don't like it when tv shows and movies just kill the characters that you didn't really care about anyway they were just the characters who were going to die i think it gives much more impact when it's people that you do care about and i really really liked him on i i i mean i don't like him as a person but i thought he was an absolutely fascinated by him. fascinating yeah. character um and i i'm sad that he's gone but I thought it was a, a really good creative decision. It, it is a shame losing those characters so soon, but uh, it did give us like a really powerful scene. So like, and and I wouldn't want them to go back on that because it really was a really powerful scene. Yeah. It will be just like the good old days. Double kill. You could definitely revisit um, both of these characters in flashback. And as we've said, the legacy from both of their work is going to go on. The, uh, uh, the Tarlock's task force of trying to keep these guys in line. They're, they're, <laughs> they're two mutual forces that they've assembled. are going to continue at loggerheads with each other, not knowing what happened to their heads. Some complaints about how Cora gets her airbending. Basically. Yeah. Okay. Which, which I can that, see. Yeah. I can see for some people. Like, I can see why it feels a little unearned in a way because all of her work to try to learn airbending is basically in the first three episodes, and then we don't really see it again. We see that she kind of learns that she learns like the forms and she learns like the tactics, but she just can't seem to do it. But like the more I thought about it. One of the things I said at the beginning was that one of her defining traits is that she will always take the brash, forceful approach when given the opportunity. Like, she can't airbend a photo of Lin Beifong after a few tries. Burn it. Best way to settle the sensitive equalist situation is to challenge the leader to single combat. She may try meditating on her dreams about Aang for a little while, but the instant her friends suggest that they try to be Batman instead, she'll go for that. Her, <laughs> like, her biggest spiritual breakthrough occurs when locked in a cage, when there's literally no forceful option left. So, like, basically, at this point in her arc, and I expect that she's going to mature and change a lot in future seasons, she has to have everything else stripped away before the peaceful, meditative, airbender way can surface. So, the emerging of her latent airbending occurring just as all the other elemental options have been completely ripped away kind of makes thematic sense to me. Mm-hmm. Makes, it made perfect sense to me. I, it was utterly logical. that She would only have that airbending breakthrough when all her other options are removed. And when it does come out, she's still really aggressive with it. She's still just throwing air bombs at him. That's, that's, 
pretty much all she's got. That's her her bending style is very direct and very aggressive. It's all firebending. Mm. Yeah. And that's the best part about it. I just like the fact that it's so different from how Aang did things. If it was just the same, it would be the same show. It's just nice to be, mm. for it to be different. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. If the show were about her learning to be Aang, that kind of has a a bit of a cheapness to it. I like that she is That's her own person. And, as well, and she yeah. learns to be her... I mean, none of the other avatars were learning to be Aang, and Aang was never learning to be Roku or or, mm. or any of the others. He, he's learned to be his own avatar the way he was, and he finished that his season and arc on his own terms. Mm. So I think Learning to be the best Aang he could be. As a, but yeah, entirely. And she and is so, uh, the best car she could be. As well. And I... The conclusion to this season is a little bit, on the whole, I'd say, overly neat. And I think if you asked Mike and Brian, they would completely agree. And in the end, like, they had to make their series work as a self-contained contained story. Not, they couldn't count on a second season to resolve things. They couldn't and just leave it on a cliffhanger and go, well, she's just an airbender, so um, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, See that. They couldn't gamble that they were going to get a second season for sure. Or even darker, she's standing on the cliff edge. Will Cora kill herself? Yeah, Can we totally. get a second season? Here's to our future relationship with the BBC. Yeah, I, I don't think you should see your future just at the BBC, Alan. I just think it's time for you to consider moving on to new pastures. H- have I got a second service? There's so many opportunities no, 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 for no, no, actually, let, let, let me. Let me rephrase that. Um, can I... No, actually, I'll just repeat the question. Have I got a second service? So, I mean, it is a little disappointing how neatly it wraps up, but knowing that book one could maybe have been stronger if they did know that they could would have more time. But I'm also like, I'm also really excited because yeah. the Korra series has consistently refused to retread old ground. And if the way th- if things had just ended with Korra having lost access to all the elements, and maybe she has to now go on a journey like Aang's to get all the elements back, that. That's I mean, if, you, just, if, you just, if you just look at the next title for the next at the book, the beginning of Walter. <laughs> yeah, if you look at the title for the next book, it's Spirits. Yeah, Cor- that's Cora's weakness. That's the that's the journey Cora needs to go on, and her, like her, she has her own strengths and weaknesses, her own character arc that she has to go through, and her journey will be defined by that. And it's that's what excites me. That's what makes it worth it to me. I think that it kind of closes out the way it does. See, I suppose the one thing they could have left, which wouldn't have been the end of the world, is Mako and Kara getting together. That didn't really need to happen yet. It would be good. Are they broadening the team for the next one? Yeah, I think they are. There was talk about bringing on writers from the old Aang creative team as well. I well hope so. Because you've got to remember, it's been how long between Aang and Kara? Quite a few other years. 70 years. No, I mean... He, me- he means literally oh, like four years. <laughs> four years. Yeah. Quite a lot of the team must have gone to other projects, so it's a case of trying to... Get the old gang back together, Blues Brothers stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Dwayne, before you were saying that these two are maybe not uh, great screenwriters, I kind of can't... Because I was reading that article... Well, and, not uh, the best. Is Well, yeah, the thing is... Writers are good at certain things and not as great as other things. Uh, one thing I will say about Dante... Uh, not Dante. <laughs> Why am I talking about Devil May Cry? Um, <laughs> Michael and Brian... You mean Dante Basco, of course. Yeah. 
<laughs> Michael and Brian are really great at writing dialogue and they're really good at creating characters and that really comes through in The Legend of Korra. What I think maybe they struggle with is a, a plot that ties in together and that's maybe why I feel overall it's stronger in uh, Legend of Aang because the plot is relatively simpler compared to Legend of Korra. Sorry, a bigger writing staff does lend itself to a broader set of skills that yeah. people can, can bring to the table. So uh, it would be great if they could bring in a few more uh, talented folks, and hopefully some of the old folks for the new seasons. Yeah, there are lots of little complaints and nitpicks I have about the series as a whole, most of which can really be written off by the fact that I know they had only 12 episodes and they had to make sure it was a conclusive story. But the nice thing about having further seasons now is that a lot of that stuff can be retroactively applied. Just the mm -hmm. same way that season, that book one in the Aang series had lots of stuff that seemed a little bit aimless that they found a way to tie all together into a single story later. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff with, like maybe the uh, Mako and Korra relationship feels kind of a little suddenly, cleanly conclusive. But I think they can do a lot more with that dynamic along with Asami later. I think they can do a lot more to flesh these characters out using cues and stuff that they've worked into this first book to uh, fix a lot of these problems retroactively. Yeah, uh, It's just like Dan says, it might sound bad, but the fact that um, it ended so neatly, things can go so much worse in the next series for them. Make no far more interesting situations. No cliffhanger is the ultimate cliffhanger yeah. in the Avatar <laughs> universe. We're so used to it ending on that, oh, what's going to happen next, that now that Korra hasn't ended that way, it just opens up the possibilities even more. You can only speculate what's going to happen. You don't have any... You don't, you don't have, have much to go, to go on. off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, the very, very end, uh, where Korra's on the, uh, the, the cliff edge, I hadn't really thought about this um, until I, I'd seen that people, people didn't like the fact that she was given this ability, uh, well, she was given all of her bending back, and she was not only d given that, but the ability to undo all of the wrongs that uh, Amon did. Um, for me, I never thought that this was a bad thing, because it's her role. She is there to heal the hurt that is wrought upon the world, and she is there to, to bring the people back together. So, of course, if anyone can actually give this, to undo this hurt, it's going to be her. Um, but just as you said, Dan, the, it comes to her when she is at her absolute lowest. The reason she's standing on the cliff edge feeling like this, she's thinking to herself, if I just die now the Avatar Force can be reborn in someone else, and maybe this won't come across. Maybe this, these, the three elements that I've lost will function in this other person. Maybe I am better off dead than alive, which is a terrible, terrible burden to put on a 17-year-old girl's shoulders. It's such an emotional, dramatic ending. And, and, and if she'd just killed herself, that would have been the most heartbreaking ending 
to a series, and it still would have felt right and whole. I didn't want it to happen, but it actually could have actually worked and made narrative sense, and I'm so glad it didn't. And like I said before, you can tell she's lost a lot of her sense of identity with her avatar abilities. Like as on her way out, like Mako tries to comfort her and like and say how much he loves her, but she doesn't really like feel like the person he loves anymore. She feels yeah. like somebody completely different. It's like you're talking to old me who's not here anymore and she walks out. And then it's only after she's restored that she comes back with that confidence. So I mean this is clearly has a huge effect on her. And while like while I agree with you, I think it is I think the ending does feel a little overly a little overly neat and it would have been nice if some of these problems kind of remained and were a little harder to sort out over time, but they have to wrap things up because they don't know if they're going to ever get another episode. So yeah. this, so I mean, what what are you going to do? I don't want to excuse the neatness myself, but it was so exhilarating that it's never bothered me. And I don't think it's a bit like the problems I point out here, I think are not in any way huge problems. I don't think they break the series at all. It's still a phenomenal series. Like I'm, I'm want to acknowledge that there are some points that are a little weaker, unfortunately. And I know that some of them aren't kind of probably couldn't be helped, but I am so excited to see more of this. This has been an amazing comeback for this series in this world. How did it feel, Jerome, to uh, to go from pretty much feeling like The Last Airbender by M. Night Shyamalan uh, was the joke of a pathetic, tragic full stop on this series to this coming along? Pure elation. As <laughs> soon as I heard that there was actually going to be a second Avatar series, I was... So I was telling everybody, even people who've never seen the series, <laughs> and the fact that I mean, the f- at the time I thought it was just going to be a one-off season. So the fact that they wrapped up everything neatly, I was quite happy because leaving a cliff, as you said, leaving a cliffhanger would have been so much worse. Yeah, leaving a cliffhanger and never getting a second series—that's. Mm. That's like Samurai Jack never getting home. It's like the kids in Dungeons and Dragons never getting home. It's like Jason the Wild Warriors never getting to Earth. Which was a big part of my childhood, watching TV programs and cartoons that never got their finale. Yeah. With regards to the comic book, that would have been better if they'd have just done an animated movie of that. Yeah, I, I could definitely uh, see them making a movie like that. The Bridges, the two. Well, I think it's... Remember you said there was a rumour that they... They might have got a movie. It might have been that. Now that they've got a second season, they're going to... I'm sure they're going to come back to that. I suppose if they did that, they've kind of got the script ready in the comic book. Yeah. Mm. It's actually... uh, um, I'm going to reiterate this one, folks. It's called The Promise, and it does feel very authentic. There's bits with Zuko there and Ozai, and you're thinking, why are you talking to this man, Zuko? Yeah, but that feels authentic to his character. Yeah, it, it shows just how... Just because they've, they've stopped this massive event happening, but things just don't end after that. Yeah. Uh, I kind of like... Start when I was watching it earlier, what it showed me, I was kind of like, Zuko, don't be that guy again. It, I just really don't want to see that. But it kind of leads into the part where he's actually got a good point, I suppose. Well... Ultimately, Ozai is still his father, whether he yeah. hates him or not. Mm. And he can't just ignore Ozai completely and pretend he doesn't exist for the rest of his life. Mm. 
Because he has to talk to him. You never get the sense that Zuko truly hates his family because they're still his family because there were good times. Oh, I think he does hate his family. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think no one would blame Zuko for never talking to Ozai ever again and just cutting that rotten leg out of his... But that's the thing. It's, and I said this to Sean earlier, it's like having a leg that's got gangrene setting in. If you cut it off and move on with your life, you will not get poisoned by it, but you have to get used to the idea of only having one leg. It is cutting away a part of yourself, and a vital part at that. So there is always a price to pay if you are able to do that. I do, I mean, I agree with a lot of the comments that have been already been made, but that doesn't change the fact that when that music kicks in and Korra's eyes start glowing and, you know, the Avatar theme starts playing, that I didn't have an instant emotional reaction to that. And mm. then seeing Lin Fong get her bending back and Lin Fong at this point being one of my favourite characters in this universe, it was just nice seeing her become whole again. When I watched the finale of Korra, I really loved Legend of Aang, but after watching the finale of Korra, it really cemented the fact that this world and this universe is probably my favourite fantasy universe ever. Um, I hold this in higher regard than Lord of the Rings, personally. Yeah, it's going to be really nice to see the second season this time. It's really glad that they're doing a second season simply because we never got around to seeing a fully realised Avatar for a while. It's going to be nice to follow that. <clears throat> That's very true, actually. We knew it once once Aang became the Avatar, it was like, wait, that was the Avatar, folks. End. <laughs> and yet she still has a lot of growth to go through. So uh, there's a okay. lot left to her arc, which is great. With regards to the emotional impact of the end, I said before it took me quite some time to really get into uh, the feel of the world and although I did on an intellectual basis fairly quickly I don't think I really emotionally connected with it until this end part so while a lot of people don't like or, or were unsatisfied with the way it rounded off it was absolutely essential for me it, it reconnected me with that um, the, the feeling of just how everything came together and what the avatar is in this world and what her role is going to be from now on and Josh you talk about strong emotional reactions crying like a girl both times seen the series through twice now and both times I was in floods at the end I got choked up I wept I'm going to ask you guys one question. Name two things that you want to see in yes. <laughs> in uh, The Legend of Korra, Book 2, Spirits. Uh, uh, shall I go first? Uh, yeah, why not? Co uh, the Face Dealer, number one. <sighs> okay. um, but number two, I, I want to see an exploration of the spirit world and what that means to the Avatar. Uh, a more fleshed out representation of what the spirit world is and what it means to the rest of the world. Jerome. Um, 
Josh took mine. <laughs> oh, he stole your well, I can name two others. Okay. The mystery be t- behind um, Zuko's mother. Mm-hmm. And... So would you like to see, because this, this one means that I don't have to choose this one, would you like to see The Promise translated into flashbacks? Yes. Okay. And? Uh, you get a second. How the rest of the nations have advanced mm. in this world. So like a world tour. Because mm. obviously I don't think everywhere is like Republic City, mm. which is like the, well, it is the fifth nation. Um, I want to see Kaya and Boomy. I want to really see Anne's kids, that family stuff. And one really little, it's probably going to be a really small thing, but I want to know where Lynn got those scars. Mm. Oh. Her face. Yes. I want to know how I got these scars. Oh, God. I'm allowed to do it out of bed. Okay. Uh, Sharon, where would you... Um, Sharon, what two things do you want to see in the next series? Um, I would like some explanation as to how the genetics of bending works, how it passes down from mm. generation to generation, what, whether it's like there's dominant ones and recessive ones and it's to do with a, a particular gene or whether it's just look at the drawer or I, I would be really interested to see how all that fits together just more flashbacks to the old team really um, more filling in of jigsaw puzzle pieces as to mm. um, where they ended up and how they got there and who is Lynn's dad <laughs> someone said very rightly there is no way that Toph and Sokka got together and that Lynn is the product of that because that would make her and Tenzin cousins. Now, while it's legal, <laughs> it's just ew enough for most of the audiences to be totally put off by that fact. So, whether Sokka and Toph maybe get together for a long period in their lives, Lynn cannot be the uh, child that is the product of that. Toph just pointed at her womb and said, fertilize eggs <laughs> nine months later. <laughs> and they were scared. So they didn't, they were told. <laughs> Was it the midichlorians? <laughs> oh, oh, God. Right, okay. Um, Daniel Floyd. Uh, I'm in total agreement with wanting to see the rest of the world and like how it's changed or not changed in some places. Mm-hmm. In some places. Uh, but, I want to see these characters, this new team avatar, taken out of Republic City. Because I think we're going to get a lot more chance to see the secondary guys, the Mako and Balin and Asami and the rest, develop when taken out of their element. And I think, so I think that'll be an exciting thing. And yeah, uh, yeah, and I guess still agreeing with other people again, I'd love to see a bit more. And it may be that touring the world kind of uh, achieves this, but a bit more of the links to seeing how the world got from where it was when we left it to what it has become. And the Promise book series has been great for that and laying some foundations. But uh, I expect there are so many stories that they could continue to tell, even stuff that doesn't directly link from like A to B where we were and where we are, but just stories of further adventures that that group got up to in different places of the world and what ha- and how that has led to the current state of the four nations or four nations and a capital or whatever you want to call it. 
Okay, because I'm the host, I'm taking three. Um, one, because of the uh, reading the promise, it's made me want to see more difficult ethical decisions. I think the show has matured now to the point where they can throw in a decision between two parties that Cora or other people have to make where neither outcome is perfect and a situation where things get complicated and a little bit messy. I think actually that the, the audience can now handle that kind of thing and I'd really like to see some, I suppose, Mass Effect style goings on because some of the... Uh, some of the, th- the, the parts of that game where Shepard has to effectively play Avatar, you know, are the best elements of, of that game. So I'd really love to say, I think Avatar, considering the scope of the world and the role she has to play, there's a huge amount of potential for that. Of course, it doesn't hurt that Kiyoshi is Commander Shepard. Again, to do with um, stuff we've seen in Korra and stuff that was in The Promise, I want to see the Fire Nation royal family right now. Ooh, we yeah. don't know that Zuko's dead. We know that Iroh's alive. Iroh the General, voiced by Dante Basco, that is. Not Iroh, voiced by Marco, who was Dante Basco's uncle. Or Marco, voiced by David Faustino, named after uncle. Iroh's most likely dead. Marco's definitely dead. But also Iroh's alive, and Marco is alive. Mike, Brian, more confusion, please. I've heard somewhere that Zuko had a daughter that he passed on the role of Fire Lord to. Doesn't mean he had to die to do it. He could have been the first Fire Lord in, well, there's been five that we've seen, definitely, uh, who just said, you know what, you be Fire Lord now, I'm going to retire, and gave it up willingly, and didn't have to be stabbed in the night. And I, I just want to see what, how he has reshaped the Fire Nation, because there has to have been some change there. It, it can't just be the, we know that sometimes your love for the Fire Lord gets so great that you have to stamp your feet, which, as you say, last week... Dan, it was, it was totally insidious and depressing and distressing. And uh, number three, and no one said this, and I'm quite astonished. Now that we've lost Amon, we need a villain, or uh, more specifically, an antagonist, and we need something to light a fire under the Avatar's feet, because the first, well, Avatar, The Legend of Aang, we had a really straightforward Quest. You have got to defeat the Fire Lord and save the world. In this, it was Amon and his company are, are threatening the, the peace of Republic City, and he could actually start a non-bending movement that really holds weight in the rest of the world. Now, she needs to be given something that is a crisis that she has to deal with. Maybe not straight away, but by the end of Spirits, we need to be given something that, that's a real challenge for Korra to be up against, that can't be solved overnight, and that overarches the rest of the series. I would agree. And I think your first and third uh, things you want are probably going to be pretty closely tied together in how they come out. Like, I, I think the balance between Bender and non-Bender's existence is very much a question that remains unanswered that's going to be hanging in the air going into further seasons. And I think whoever the whoever takes up that cause next could be the next major threat. Hmm. Or maybe ally. Maybe Maybe it turns out that I don't know. You never know how this thing could go, and they could go any way with it. Sharon's asking me what flashing buttons are on the screen. Sorry. No, no, no. Totally recording. Um, and Kai, yeah. I've got to say, I want more Naga and Pabu. <laughs> I think you're going to get your wish. I want there. a fire ferret, damn yeah. it. Uh, well, okay, I want the Tales of Bar Sing Say, but the Tales of Republic City. 
for like one of the episodes. As soon as they've gotten the first arc over with, I want a relaxation episode where you get to see a few of them doing their, doing their thing. Dragons. Oh, and while we're on the subject, since communications broke down with Bandai for the first one of Avatar figures and the movie toys aren't worth mentioning, I'm officially requesting Legend of Korra action figures. Six-inch scale would be great in keeping with Marvel Legends. Nice, big, chunky, beautifully sculpted, preferably by the Four Horsemen, who've done both the 2002 and Classics line of Masters of the Universe. We want multiple points of articulation for bending, but they also need to be able to hold their poses and throw in some snap-on flames and water splashes for effect. I'm thinking the Sota line of Street Fighter figures here. Steer clear of action features, made-up armor, wind swords, rocket launchers, and just deliver us Korra, Tenzin, Marco, Lin, and Amon for the first wave. Make them available through Toys R Us and plan out several more waves, provided they're successful, including, of course, the original Team Ang. That's my Christmas wish. I want, I want. Aren't we incredibly self-entitled? <laughs> but at this point, it's kind of a, a relaxed I want, because mm. I think all of us are fairly certain that roughly what we want is going to be fulfilled in some way, and I pretty much would expect that they are going to exceed expectations. Is that a contradiction in terms? <laughs> <laughs> Either way, I am, I'm quite happy being stuck in the aerobarous loop of expecting to have my expectations exceeded. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's stuff we're excited for more than yeah. what we're insisting that we must have. And of course. if we, there's stuff that we don't get, I, ex, well, I have full confidence that they're going to give us something equal to or greater. So I, I look forward to being surprised. Me too. Brilliant. This show is joyful, and I have really, really enjoyed getting on. Three and a half thousand listeners have listened to the uh, the first episode of the, the, the last Airbender. Excellent. Um, this is jumping up from 400 to 500. And I don't know how many of our actual community have listened to me and gone, you know what, Alex, and everyone else on this podcast, Team, team Gonzo, we are going to take you up on your word. We are going to check this show out. And woe betide you if it is, n- if it is anything short of awesome. Uh, but I want to hear from you guys. I would like a list of converts... On the thread. I want to hear people that are like, yes, I started watching this show for me, thanks to you guys, and it's awesome. So thank you. In my wildest dreams, I can't imagine that every single one of you newcomers is going to stick around for everything we have to say. But stick around at least for Lord of the Rings, because I think those shows are going to be pretty awesome. There's going to be quite a large amount of crossover of fans who like Avatar and fans who like Lord of the Rings. And check back through the Digital Gonzo catalog of already released shows, because I'm sure you're going to find some movie or game or show that you are very interested in and would like to hear more about. Worth your time. And always send me messages. I mean, there has been... No one actually used the message function on the, um, uh, on the main website of Gonzo Planet. We always use the forum. But there's been so many messages popping up on the Avatar shows, and I'm just like, I am happy to answer any of your queries and questions and address anything which you guys want. And I've pretty much managed to answer every question and request that's been actually on there. But keep them coming, folks. And, uh, yeah, hope, I, I honestly hope all of you stick around. And come to the forum. We're nice. Okay. Right. Anything else on uh, the Avatar series until sometime next year after we've seen 14, 14 more episodes? It's like Christmas. I absolutely love this world and these characters, and I'm so happy that it's come back as strong as it has with Legend of Korra. I watched Sideways the other day, and um, Miles asks Maya at one point, what was the bottle of wine that 
got you into wine? What was the bottle of wine that did it? I think uh, ultimately when it comes down to Avatar, it's who was the person that convinced you? So uh, thank you, Josh. Absolutely. It's, I'm, I love that this show is getting a second chance to light the world on fire because if it weren't for the buzz surrounding Korra and then after mm. that, I might not have taken the time to watch uh, Josh's video on the Ang series. I might not have really ever made time to watch the show. So I am thrilled that the Korra series and by association, the Ang series are getting a second chance to take off. That's one of the biggest reasons why I love the chorus series so much is it has sparked so much interest in the whole series. It's the fact that Korra has sparked such interest in the whole series that everybody is going, well, not everybody, but so many people are going back and finding out, finding out about this world that I've loved for so many years. I can't imagine starting off watching Korra and not wanting to go back and, and see what it, how it began. But you see how the, how harmful that movie was. Yes. It made people who didn't know anything about the show think, well, that looks like rubbish. It is one of the few things that actually hurt the franchise it came from. Yeah. Well, that's why Legend of Korra is so important, because yep. now it feels like the movie's this irritating thing that happened in the past, rather than this harmful thing that's destroying the reputation of the series it's yeah. almost now that now that legend of Korra is out we can just exercise um excise that movie from our minds and just move on with our lives i think you were right with exercise <laughs> the power of christ compels you okay uh. so while we fetch the crucifixes and holy water to shoot m night Shyamalan away from our doors i would just like to thank all of you guys team gonzo and I hope you all come back to talk about The Legend of Korra Book 2 Spirits sometime next year. You'll know I'll be there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I look forward to it. I don't think you could keep me away. <laughs> <laughs> no, and seriously. Before you guys go, I just want to give you a little insight into what a gonzo edit takes. We talked for three and a half hours that night, and I spent three days trimming it down, adding music and sound. And I spent three days trimming down the raw footage, adding music and sound flourishes, pacing it in a way that's clear and compelling. See right there, I couldn't even get it right, and it's written down in front of me. When people talk, they usually don't have the ability to reel off what they're considering first time without making mistakes, awkward pauses, losing your thread of conversation, talking over one another and saying, um, I trim all of that away, so what you listeners get is what we would all sound like if we knew exactly what to say and when to say it. It's podcasting bonsai, crafted lovingly in a way you don't often get because it takes too long. And of course, I'm the one who blunders the most because my mouth often engages before my brain has had the chance to sort things out. Here's what you don't normally get to hear on Digital Gonzo. From extra credit, that. From extra credits, and it there. Um, 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 uh, um, uh, um, like, um, like, um, uh, like, um, 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 uh, and, um, 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 but, uh, uh, in the, but, you know, um, uh, um, uh, um, 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 um,
uh, uh, because of our emotional connect uh, emotion uh, uh, because of our emotional connect I can't speak um, because of our <laughs> sorry, sorry had a hiccup there <laughs> <laughs> like I said the uh, maybe episode you know, uh, not don't all say that they uh, submit out bollocks to it and I would be remiss in my duties as chief editor of Gonzo Planet's website if I didn't mention the fantastic stuff you can also find on there. These five Avatar shows are but a small percentage of the amount of content available. You'll find movie reviews first and foremost, but also video game discussions, articles on gaming, cinema and all aspects of geek culture in text, audio and video form. These are all submitted by a team of writers named the Freelancers Guild and its many guest speakers. My show, Digital Gonzo, is effectively the second volume of my podcasting work, the first being Digital Cowboys, which ran for just over four years. My colleague Tony Atkins went on to co-host Kane and Rince, and some of the best of our 209 shows can be found on this very feed under the Digital Cowboys Gold heading with more to follow. Neil Taylor of Gameburst also hosts a regular podcast called Desert Island Gonzo, in which he poses his guests the classic Eight Items Conundrum. James Midgemeister Perkins' Geekwad review show can also be found especially good for fans of zombies and the undead, as that seems to be a recurring theme of his. And there's, of course, the Digital Gonzo back catalogue. Some of my favourites include the Nevermind the Buzz Geeks quiz show, my early run of audio articles on gaming culture, the beta of Blue Sun, a sci-fi book I'm writing, rendered into an hour-long audio drama, and, of course, Batman Breakdown, which I will be playing a trailer of at the very end of the show. It's a great sign, and everyone involved has worked very hard to bring the best we can offer the geek community. And as we near our one-year anniversary and the 100th episode, I figure it's about time I started promoting the damn thing. So if you've enjoyed these shows, please leave me a review on iTunes, like Gonzo Planet on Facebook, and tweet about us to everyone you know. I would love to hear from all of you on our forum, which I estimate to be about the best in the world. See you next week for episode 100, the 10 most important games of our generation. Oh, and I only just realised today that Republic City's harbour is called UA Bay, after the heroic princess. So, Daniel Floyd, despite the fact that most of our listeners came here because of you, do you want to mention the, uh, uh, your, your particular lectures and things? Sure. That's um, so why wow, my voice is really going. Sorry. Um. Uh, do, you want to, do, you, uh, do you want me to do it? Yes, you go ahead. Okay. You did it better than I did anyway. Thank you. Uh, Daniel Floyd is a very deeply intelligent, sensitive, and uh, a brilliant young man who, uh, with his collaborator, James Portnow, formulates lectures on the gaming industry, usually to do with you know, ways it can move forwards, terrible things that are holding it back. He just recently did a fantastic two-parter on an essential part of the evolution of the FPS, Spec Ops The Line, which I encourage all of you guys to check out. But you probably already have, because you're here because of Dan. But either way, uh, you can check out his work on Penny Arcade TV. Thank you very much. Uh, you can find me over at com, where you'll find a podcast where we take a game or a series of games, dissect them and discuss them in detail. Uh, you can also find interesting articles and reviews up on the site. I recently did an article on Persona that you might want to check out. Um, <laughs> Actually, do you want to um, name some of the games and series, especially ones that you've been part of, that if people like hearing Josh's voice and his insight, um, and you want to hear him talk about video games, then what, what titles have you been part of? 
Um, I talked about Shadow of the Colossus. I've talked about the Riven Heaven, uh, Riven Heaven series. Uh, I've talked about Resident Evil 4. Loads. Of, I've been on quite a few shows. Um, I have quite a broad taste in video games. So mm. the downside is I'm called on for, for that podcast quite frequently. Uh, so you can find me on loads of shows over at Canaan Rids. Um, also, um, I do a video series on Gonzo Planet called The Animation Archives, which uh, got many of the people who are on this podcast to watch the series, yeah. um, Avatar. Uh, a second episode, the second episode is on My Neighbor Totoro, and the third episode is still in the works. I also want to thank from the Gonzo Planet community, my very, very patient wife, Sharon Shaw. And um, one additional thing that I've been doing recently oh, yeah, is I have recorded the first episode of Dorkcast with Leah Haydu and Matt Ramsey of GamerDork. That should be out fairly soon, I think. It's coming back, folks. Massively excited about that. And Jerome, thank you so much for coming on. No problem. And finally, Dwayne Griffiths. This was, was this the first ever podcasting series you were on? Yeah, around that one we did with Neil. Have you enjoyed it? I have, yeah. We're going to finish on some of that wonderful, wonderful Korra music, and I think it's probably best if we finish on the climax where Korra gets her bending back and enters for the first time the Avatar state. Thank you all for coming on. This has been a wonderful, wonderful series and worth every second. Thank you for having us. You're very welcome. Okay. Legend of Korra, Avatar state... Yip yip.
Hello, my name is Alfred Pennyworth, and I'd like to make a withdrawal. Everybody down on the ground! Bruce, I can't even begin to imagine how you feel right now. Give me the gun. Come on, son. But you've got to talk to us. Why are you out here tonight? I'm fine. No, you're not. Batman, look what you're doing. Look what you nearly did. Look at me. Look at me! Typical. You goddamn bottom-feeding son of a bitch. You think that just because you've got the power to take something, that you have the right to. And when I take that power away, what do you learn? What do you learn? I, I, I give up already! Look, if you're not going to talk about this to me, you can talk to someone professional. Dr. Jennifer Whitman. Alfred and I handpicked her for you. Dr. Whitman. Woken up with bullets flying through my tent, I can handle this. I don't kill ever. I've wanted to kill them every night. What are your reasons? One of these days, Two Face, Zaz, Joker. Right now, I can't trust myself not to. You're quitting? I haven't been okay in a long time. So you're handing over. We've all got friends who were succeeded. Had, Ollie, buried. So who's gonna take over the cape and cowl if we skip town? I want to call him my son. anymore.